If you choose to become inactive or to leave the restored Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where will you go? What will you do? You're entering Outer Brightness. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, just in case you didn't get it in those first few, few verses, right? You, you, you were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Did, did I born myself again? No. He made me alive together with Christ. Listen, I can no more manufacture the second birth than I manufactured the first one. Fireflies and new YouTube viewers to a special Outer Brightness event. I'm your host, Michael Flournoy, and tonight we have with us LDS apologist Brett Dennis. He's here to debate our very own Paul Nurnberg. The topic for the debate tonight will be, is the Book of Abraham ancient scripture? Before we turn the time over to our debaters, I'll give a brief bio for each, and then my assistant Matthew will cover the debate format. I'll start with Brett. Brett Dennis is a lifelong member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He has a passion for studying the scriptures with an emphasis on the relationships between the Bible and LDS scripture. He served as a missionary in Central California, a mini Bible belt, where frequent challenges to his religious views ignited an abiding interest in interfaith discourse and in resolving criticism of his faith using simple fact-based methods. He has had several stints as Ward Gospel Doctrine teacher, and he currently lives in Tuscan, Arizona with his wife, Lisa, and four children. Paul Nurnberg was born in Bountiful, Utah, and raised a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He served a two-year mission to Hungary, where he first encountered the gospel of grace preached to him by a young Baptist missionary couple. Paul was later married in the Bountiful, Utah Temple and continued to serve in the LDS Church. During his adult years in the LDS Church, he was a counselor and teacher in the Young Men's Organization, a primary teacher, and was twice a counselor and teacher in the elders' quorum. Through several challenging life experiences, God drew Paul to his son Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and in May of 2010, Paul and his family left the LDS faith. He accepted Christian baptism at the age of 33 on August 11, 2011. He received an MDiv in Biblical Studies in 2017. Paul lives in northern Kentucky across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. He and his wife, Angela, have five children. He has a heart for Latter-day Saints, especially those who leave that church and become agnostic or atheist. He co-founded the Outer Brightness podcast to be a resource for ex-Mormons in faith transition who are drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Thank you, Michael. So my name is Matthew, and I will be the debate moderator. So following that introduction, thank you, Michael, for that. Once again, I'll introduce to everyone... The topic of the debate tonight will be, is the book of Abraham ancient scripture? With Brett L. Dennis affirming and Paul Nuremberg opposing. So the basic rules of this debate, not a whole lot, but hoping we can stick to it. 
there should be no inter interruptions. If it's someone else's time to speak, the other one should be respectful and hopefully have their microphone muted. The speakers must wait their turns and treat each other with dignity and respect. And I may need to enforce these rules, but we hope that uh, it will go smoothly and that uh, everything will go well. I'll try to be as fair and balanced as I can be with the timing. So if someone takes extra time during one of the sections, I'll try to be fair and, and offer that to, to the other participant. So the basic format of the debate will start with opening statements with 25 minutes each in length. Uh, there will be following that a rebuttal period of 10 minutes each where each participant will be able to rebut the arguments from their opponent. Uh, following the rebuttal period, there will be a cross-examination period, which will have 20 minutes each. So uh, one participant will have 20 minutes to ask questions of their opponent and then vice versa. And following the cross-examination period, there will be a segment for audience questions, and this will last 20 minutes. So for those who are watching our live feed on YouTube, we recommend that you leave comments and we will... We'll be filtering out the questions that will be available or that will be given. So please keep your questions on topic related to the debate. Uh, when you post a question, please specify the person to whom the question is being asked or if it is being asked to both participants. And our host, Michael, he will screen and read those questions during that period. And then following the audience questions period, there will be a closing statement period where each participant will have five minutes to give their closing statements. So before we get started with the opening statements, the participants have agreed that a brief introduction to the book of Abraham will be presented by me, the moderator. So I'll do that very quickly, and then I will put time on the clock for Mr. Dennis's opening statement. So I will read this out. These, these were agreed upon by both participants um, as an introduction to the book of Abraham. Between 1818 and 1820, Egyptian explorer Antonio Lebolo uncovered some artifacts in Egypt. In 1833, they were acquired by Michael Chandler, who sold some papyri and mummies to the Latter-day Saints in Kirtland, Ohio, in 1835. Joseph Smith examined the papyri and declared that they contained the writings of the biblical patriarchs Abraham and Joseph. Translation of the papyri began in 1835 with various scribes. Abraham chapter 1 through Abraham chapter 2 verse 18 was translated that year, and then Joseph Smith was interrupted in his translation work. He resumed translation in Nauvoo, Illinois, in the early 1840s. The Book of Abraham, as we have it today, was first published in serial form in the Mormon periodical Times and Seasons at Nauvoo, Illinois, between March 1st and May 16th, 1842. The initial publication was in paragraph form and included the text of the Book of Abraham and three facsimiles, or engravings of images, reconstructed from the papyri in Joseph Smith's possession. The last installment, containing Abraham chapter 5, ends with the words, to be continued, indicating that Joseph Smith intended to, pub to publish more. He was killed in 1844, and nothing more was ever published. After Joseph's death, the papyri were sold by Emma Smith and ended up in a museum in Chicago, where they were presumed destroyed by the Chicago Fire of 1871. In 1851, in Liverpool, England, the Book of Abraham was published by Mormon apostle Franklin D. Richard as part of the collection he titled The Pearl of Great Price. That collection was reissued in 1878 by the Body of Mormons in Utah, led by Brigham Young. In 1880, it was adopted as canon by what is now the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. A new edition with chapter and verse divisions was published in 1901 and again accepted by common consent as canonized scripture by the church. Other restoration denominations stemming from Joseph Smith do not accept the Book of Abraham as canon. In 1967, Aziz Atiyah, discovered a subset of the papyri in the Metropolitan Museum of New York. 
These fragments were donated to the LDS Church in 19... 19- the most interesting of these fragments is called by various names. The Breathing Permit of Hor, the Book of Breathing, or the Sen Sen Document, which is Egyptian for to breathe in and out. Some lines of evidence tie the Breathing Permit of Hor to the Book of Abraham as the source Joseph Smith was looking at when he translated the main text of the document. The claim is disputed by some LDS scholars. Facsimile 1 was damaged and likely reconstructed by Joseph Smith. It was at the beginning of the breathing permit of Hor. Facsimile 3 is no longer extant, but likely was at the end of the breathing permit of Hor. Facsimile 2 is the hypocephalus of Shishonk, no longer extant in the papyri. So that is the introduction to the Book of Abraham. I will now start the clock for 25 minutes. And like I said, once it turns yellow, that means you have five minutes, uh, Brett and or Mr. Dennis. And when there's one minute left, it will turn red. So that's just for you to know. So I will now turn the time over to Mr. Dennis for his opening statement. Thank you. I want to start out by uh, thanking Paul for being willing to talk to me tonight. Um, I also want to thank Michael and Matthew for hosting the event this evening. Um, and uh, I want to thank the viewing audience for joining in. I'm flattered. I mean, I know most of you are actually here to see Michael Flournoy's uh, stellar good looks. He's, he's blackened out now. So I guess um, you have to, to deal with uh, my face now. Can you actually see my face, by the way? I don't, I can't. Okay. We're good. All right. Good. Um, I'm feeling good tonight. I'm wearing my lucky penguin socks um, and I uh, know you can't see them, um, but it should be a fun debate. I've, I've had interactions with, uh, with Paul before extensively, as well as with uh, Matthew and, and, and Michael, more Michael than Matthew, but it's good to put faces and, and gestures with uh, the written text. So how this debate came to fruition, it started with a challenge that Paul issued to me back in August of last year. Um, he challenged me to listen to a Mormon Stories podcast with John DeLynn, where he was interviewing Dr. Robert Rittner. Dr. Rittner is the foremost non-LDS uh, scholar commenting on the book of Abraham today. He does not like Joseph Smith. I think he might have a personal grudge against a particular BYU scholar. I'm not going to get into that, but um, suffice it to say that it was not a friendly interview to the Latter-day Saints. I listened to all 13 hours because if I didn't, Paul would call me a chicken. Um, I have interest in the subject anyway, so I was happy to do it. And um, it took about a month and I posted the comments to the Facebook group that Paul and I are both in. After Paul read through those comments, he came to me essentially and he said, uh, you know, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Would you like to talk to Dr. Rittner himself about the criticisms you issued against his work? I thought he was joking, honestly. And um, I thought, you know, Robert Rittner does not want to talk to me, but Paul went away for three days. I thought I would never see him again. And then he came back and I found out he was serious. He said, Robert Rittner does not want to talk to you, <laughs> but I do. So um, he, uh, he challenged me to this debate, and here we are. I want to uh, cover about, th- well, I want to cover three points of analysis in my opening statement. First of all, I would like to make some concessions. Not everything that the Book of Abraham critics say about the Book of Abraham is incorrect. Um, so I'm going to start there and just admit where some of the things that people say are true. Second, I want to introduce a conceptual framework, a, a sort of a model for viewing the Book of Abraham as well as the other translations of Joseph Smith. Um, it is my belief that if you let go of some fundamental, reasonable, but incorrect assumptions, turn the prism just a little bit, start viewing the Book of Abraham through uh, a different light, that the inspiration of Joseph Smith begins to explode onto the page. And finally, 
Number three, I would like to spend the rest of the time just going over examples, as many examples as I can to illustrate the framework that I introduced. So number one, concessions. It is, I think, uh, usually bad form in a debate to start by anticipating what your opponent is going to say and refuting that. Um, generally, you start with your own uh, affirmative statement and find reasons to support it. I'm making an exception in this case because the Book of Abraham is so pervasive and discussions on it are so pervasive. I've been involved in these discussions really since my mission 25 years ago, but more especially uh, in the last eight years, and they all tend to go the same way. So I want the audience to be to know that I am familiar with the criticisms that, that have been leveled against the Book of Abraham and admit where some of them are actually correct. Concession number one, the papyrus in the church's possession does not mention the name Abraham. This is um, admitted by the church gospel topics essay on the book of Abraham, so I don't think I'm breaking any ground here. Concession number two, the book of Abraham is not a direct literal translation of the breathing permit of horror or any other document in the church's possession. Um, that's not to say it isn't a translation in some sense of the word. There are some lines of evidence that point to a relationship between the breathing permit of horror and the book of Abraham. These should not be um, dismissed lightly. I think they should be taken seriously. Um, and by the way, well, since I mentioned the church essay, I think it's important also uh, to mention that the church essay has been misrepresented. Um, it says that the relationship between the papyrus and the book of Abraham is not clear. It does not say that the church has admitted that there is no relationship. So because I've heard that point of view expressed a couple of times, I thought I'd put that out there. Concession number three. I don't think that many of the apologetic arguments that are uh, issued in response to Book of Abraham's Book of Abraham criticism are are necessarily valid. Um, in particular, there is a theory called the long scroll theory that I don't buy into. I know a lot of members of the church do. Uh, I was going to spend a little bit of time explaining it. Um, if anyone's interested, I encourage you to bring it up again in our Q and A session. But I don't have time to go over it anymore at this point. Concession number four. It is difficult to produce positive evidence for individuals and small-scale events that happened thousands of years ago. This is definitely true with Abraham. It's true with the Abraham of the Bible as well as the Abraham of the Book of Abraham. That's not to say that the Book of Abraham is not historical, but that's not my interest. I'm not going to be talking about the historicity of the Book of Abraham narrative. I will leave members of the church who are interested in that to, uh, to pick up that torch. All right, so having made these concessions, how then can I proclaim that the book of Abraham is inspired scripture. Um, a lot of people look at these, these things that I've just said, and they say, well, this is damning. You know, it, it proves that the book of Abraham is false, that Joseph Smith was a false prophet. Um, and by extension, then the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint, the whole, uh, you know, Mormon movement is uh, invalid. What I'm going to introduce now is a, a framework that I found particularly useful in discussing and studying the LDS scriptures. The basic idea is that Joseph was able to read and translate the documents in his possession. And he uh, usually produced in his English translation the core concept of the glyph or the figure or the word or the character that he was looking at in the original language. But he didn't stop there. Once he had the core meaning of the uh, item in place, he would expand it. He would often off offer commentary on it. He would recontextualize it, put it in a new context, either to make a new point or to reemphasize the point he'd already made. He would repurpose it. And uh, this is one of my favorite things. He would combine it with other sources. So the question then is no longer, does everything in the translated document match something in the source document? 
um, and at least not in a, you know, in a, in a phrase by phrase way. The, that, that question is replaced in this model by two other questions. First, does the meaning of the translated text capture the meaning of the source text consistently enough to be statistically significant? In other words, did Joseph Smith prove that he actually knew the language? And second, for the context, for the text that is surrounding the, uh, the English translation, can we find uh, reasons that that context exists, such as is he commenting on it or is he combining it with other sources as I have uh, suggested? I think the answer to both of these questions is yes. And I wanna read this verbatim, because I think this is maybe the most important thing um, I, I'm saying tonight, at least with reference to the Dr. Ridner interview. An understanding of what the Egyptian on Joseph Smith's primary source document says is only part of what we need to know to evaluate its meaning. Let me repeat that again. An understanding of what the Egyptian on Joseph's primary source document, document says is only part of what we need to know to evaluate its meaning. What this means is that somebody like Dr. Rittner, who was an Egyptologist, may not be the best person to evaluate the book of Abraham. So let me dive in here with some examples. And I want to start spend quite a bit of time on the first example because uh, it, it I think it is very illustrative on the topics that we're discussing here. So I'm gonna share my screen. Okay, let's get it here. Uh, will somebody please give me a verbal confirmation that you can see my screen? And let's try to get Matthew's. No, not yet. Okay, let me go back. Uh, hang on, and I can't get out of this. There we go. Hmm. I can't even find the window. That's not what I want. Uh, okay, wait a second. Okay, here we go. So I'm okay, share screen. Okay, there we go. And share. All right. I'll use a different tool for work, so I'm not that familiar with Zoom. Okay, can you see my screen now? Yes. Fantastic. Yes. Okay, so. If you'd like back. an extra minute, by the way, for technical yes, please. difficulties. Yes, please. That would be great. I appreciate that. Yep. Okay. All right. So I want to start out talking here about facsimile 2. This is facsimile 2. I want to zero in on figure 2, which is in the upper portion there in the center. So let's just fast forward a little bit. In particular, I want to be talking about this stand that is on the right-hand side uh, near the bottom. The, the stand is something that Joseph Smith called an altar. Now the question is, is this an accurate depiction of what the Egyptian symbol is? And I know that it is. I don't even have to go to LDS Apologist to show that it is because Dr. Rittner said so. What it actually is, is an altar. That's your altar stand. Now, Dr. Rittner is not going to uh, give Joseph Smith credit for this, and I'll show in just a minute how he tries to get around it. But uh, when you boil all of the minutiae away, the core of what, what Dr. Rittner is saying is that this is an altar, and Joseph Smith said it was an altar. At this point, we've blown out of the water the notion that Joseph got nothing correct in the papyrus. He did get something correct. He at least got this correct. And all you need is one counterexample to challenge the assertion that he got nothing correct. So this is the level we need to start discussing this at. Uh, it just is not adequate to say that Joseph understood no Egyptian whatsoever. Now, is there a lot of text around the altar here? Uh, the, the answer is yes, there is. Where does that text come from? Let's go to the next slide. And we can see that Joseph said, is pertaining to other planets as revealed from God to Abraham as he offered sacrifice upon an altar. Now, the question I'm going to ask is, is there a uh, Abrahamic document that depicts Abraham sacrificing on an altar and being uh, receiving a revelation about the planets? And the answer is yes, there is. It's called the Apocalypse of Abraham. The Apocalypse of Abraham is a document that was written in Old Slavonic, probably about the time of Christ, 
but it wasn't discovered until after Joseph Smith's death. It was discovered in 1863, I believe, wasn't translated into English until the 1890s. And this document, the Apocalypse of Abraham, has probably about two dozen different um, specific parallels with the Book of Abraham. More, I believe, than can be attributed to chance. So here's the relevant text from the Apocalypse. You'll notice, I will show you standing, uh, I will show you standing beside you, for they are the altar on the mountain to offer sacrifice to the Eternal One. Notice how this compares with Joseph Smith's explanation pertaining to other planets as revealed to God from God to Abraham as he offered sacrifice upon an altar. And what happens in the apocalypse while Abraham is sacrificing? He says, for I will ascend on the wings of birds to show you what is in the heavens in the fullness of the universe. In other words, Abraham is being shown the planets, just as the book of Abraham says. All right, so this is, uh, I, I think it's striking, and it shows one of the sources that Joseph is combining with the altar of uh, the Egyptian document to produce this figure too. Now you'll notice in the book of, of uh, sorry, in the Apocalypse of Abraham, the altar is not literal. It says uh, that Abraham is to give his sacrifice to men who will represent an altar, whereas figure two says that Abraham built the altar unto the Lord. So there's a little difference there. And the question then is, is there a uh, place where we can go to find where Abraham built an altar to the Lord? And the answer is yes, we don't have to go very far. Genesis 22, nine, Abraham built an altar there. This is significant because this is the sacrifice of Isaac, and both the book of Abraham and the apocalypse of Abraham have some very striking parallels to the sacrifice of Isaac, which, again, I don't have time to get into at this point. And then Genesis 13, 8, Abraham, Abraham built there an altar unto the Lord. So to summarize, Joseph Smith is talking about an altar. Robert Rittner confirms that the altar is there. We find uh, context from the apocalypse of Abraham in this figure. And then, of course, we have the biblical associations. This is, I think, a good example of how Joseph combines sources. He takes the core essence of what is in the Egyptian document, and then he combines other sources into his description to give us what uh, the uh, expanded meaning that God wants us to have is. Now, uh, one, one question that I get frequently is, well, you know, that kind of looks like an altar. Could it have been a lucky guess by Joseph Smith? And it's impossible to, impossible to prove that it wasn't, but... I do know that that figure is not obviously an altar. How do I know that? Again, I'm going to go to the interview with Dr. Rittner. Um, first, a little background, a little more on the story of how that altar got to where it is now. This is the hypocephalus of Shashank as it exists today and as it apparently existed in Joseph Smith's day. Joseph had to fill in the missing portion there in the upper right-hand corner. One of the ways he did that was by, take, by borrowing other parts of the papyrus and including them there. So in this case, apparently he took... The, uh, the altar from facsimile 1 figure 10, and he copied and pasted it over there into that section of the uh, hypocephalus in that manner. The, the altar probably was not original to the hypocephalus. That doesn't mean that it was wrong. It just means that Joseph had a purpose for putting it there. Um, and if there's any question about how, uh, about whether Joseph knew the original, what it should have looked like, we'll find evidence of that in figure three. So hopefully we have a chance to get there. But the point is um, that, yes, he knew what the original said, and he was taking some liberties with it. All right. I don't have a problem with that. And I think if you understand that this is vintage Joseph Smith, uh, I, I think it's, it's really not much of a problem at all. But now, how did Dr. Rittner treat this in the interview? First of all, while he was discussing figure one, this is where we get his statement 
that that uh, what it actually is is an altar. That's your altar stand. He was using this statement to contrast it with Joseph Smith's explanation, which was Abraham in Egypt. He then pointed out that uh, the when he was discussing facsimile two, he pointed out that the copy from figure 10 was made into facsimile two, where Joseph actually does call it an altar. But now this is where things get very interesting because Dr. Rittner is going to backtrack on his earlier statement. He says, let me try to get my, my own text out of the way here. He says, there's no altar, except that of course he's added, and then he stops himself. And he says, well, he's, he's added in the stand with the flowers. So he doesn't even wanna call it an altar now because that's the word that Joseph Smith uses which if you will remember in the facsimile one, he labeled as representing Abraham in Egypt. So he stuck it from here in a cut and paste, giving it essentially the same meaning it had in facsimile one. No, he didn't. Okay, I got I to cut him off right there. I know I'm reading, I'm reading his words, but he did not give essentially the same description in figure 10 as he did in figure two. He gave two different descriptions. They are not mutually exclusive. And uh, I think it's best to understand them as being different aspects of the same figure. In some sense, this is an altar that represents Abraham in Egypt. Both of the descriptions apply, and Rittner, for whatever reason, I think I know the reason, only wants one of them to apply. Now, you'll notice I cut out some text there. This is a, uh, the text that I cut out was uh, a dialogue between John DeLynn and Dr. Rittner, where John DeLynn listened to what he had just said, and he said, oh, okay, so what Joseph did was take a figure that he thought looked like an altar and pasted it in here and called it an altar. It's reasonable that DeLynn would have thought that, even though he'd already been told that it was an altar, because this was the misdirection that Dr. Rittner was applying. And this is what shows me now that this is not an easy guess. DeLynn did not think this was an altar, and he allowed Dr. Rittner, despite having said it was an altar, to, to convince him that it wasn't. At this point, Dr. Rittner seemingly begins to understand that he's, he's maybe talking himself into a hole, and so he kind of uh, backtracks a little bit again. He goes on. The altar, he didn't understand. He, Joseph Smith, didn't understand. Here, what we're calling an altar he didn't know it was an altar. Now, I find that statement to be astonishing because Joseph Smith actually said in figure two that it is an altar. So we can see through this how Joseph Smith can get something right and it can be spun to make it look wrong. Uh, just a second, I need to check my time here. How, how are we doing on time? Uh, Matthew, what's the, what's the time right now? So I added a, so I'll add a minute and a half. So you have about five and, or about six and a half minutes. Okay. Well, while I'm sharing my screen, I can't see the time. So if you give me like a two minute warning, that would be sure. great. Okay. Sounds nice. great. All right. So let's get back into this. So what I want to do now is just go through some examples of how to show that this is not a, an isolated event. We see Joseph Smith getting uh, the correct Egyptian explanation over and over and over again and over and over and over again. Dr. Rittner either doesn't mention it or tries to downplay it or uh, does something else to try to obfuscate it. So let's just dig in here. This is figure one from the hypocephalus. It appears in the middle of the figure. Joseph said it is Kolob signifying the first creation. Here's what Dr. Rittner said about it in his book. He said the central figure is not Kolob in Egyptian terms. I believe this. Kolob is probably related to other Semitic roots. Uh, there is a, an Arabic uh, QLB, Kolb, I guess is how you pronounce it, which means center which makes sense because figure one is in the center of the hypocephalus. It's cognate with the Hebrew karov, which means near. And so you can see there that Joseph captured the, uh, the connotation of being near as well. He appears to be playing on this word in, in a couple different languages. Um, but yeah, it's not Egyptian. So I'll grant him that. The central figure is not kolob in Egyptian terms, nor is he the first creation, etc. Rather, the image is the creator God himself. So Rittner is... is um, splitting hairs between Joseph saying this is the first creation and the fact that it is the creator. 
Um, I think that's kind of dopey, honestly. But, um, you, you know, to me, you can't have a creator without a creation and vice versa. But I, I guess you can make your own judgment there as long as you have that information. Unfortunately, in the interview, Dr. Rittner said the primary scene is the creator God, but he does not call attention to the fact that Joseph Smith said it was the first creation. So, again, you can make your judgment on that one. Uh, figure one, uh, this is uh, an Egyptian phrase that Joseph Smith reconstructed called Jao-A. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one, but apologists Michael Rhodes and John Gee have sought to defend Smith's explanation as, oh, the earth. Rittner did have uh, an objection to that. I don't think his objections are legitimate. In the interview, he just said it's an attempt at saying Yahweh, but he did not provide any evidence for his opinion. Figure two is uh, Olablish, which is next to the grand governing creation, holding the key of power. Now, this is significant because Dr. Rittner uh, said that in similar hypocephali, the figure in this position carries a wasp scepter. He doesn't tell us what a wasp scepter is, but if you go to Wikipedia, you can find out that a wasp scepter is a power scepter. That's how wasp is translated. So for Joseph Smith to say that he's holding the key of power is significant. Figure three, remember, this is the reconstructed portion of the papyrus. This is very interesting. Um, again, the figure is holding a wasp scepter. So for Joseph Smith to associate it with power is accurate. He's wearing, with a crown of eternal light upon his head. He has a solar disc here. So that is also accurate. It was reconstructed by Joseph Smith from a different part of the papyrus. Um, and Dr. Rittner, in talking about the image, said that what you see is the falcon-headed sun god Ra with a sun disc on his head. So he's describing the image that Joseph replaced there. In his book, he said, oh, I'm sorry, this is also the, the Mormon Stories podcast. He said, um, the lost section often contains a solar bark with the sun god. So what Joseph did is he found an image that contained the, the sun god sitting in a bark. He pasted it into this section in the hypocephalus, which is exactly, or at least very close. It was similar to what should be there anyway. There's a little bit of discussion between Delin and RFM on this, uh, Delin, RFM, and, and uh, Dr. Rittner on this point. Um, Delin asks, is it a little bit impressive that they've got a, it is a little bit impressive that they got a boat, right? And Rittner says, kudos a little bit sarcastically. Yes, but the thing is, I know where he got this particular boat because it's elsewhere in the papyri. So he doesn't want to give Joseph Smith credit for it because he borrowed it from someplace rather than freehanding it. But you can see that the image is what it should be. And Dr. Rittner essentially admits it. Just under two minutes, by the way. Okay, thank you. I'll finish up with figure four. Uh, figure four, Joseph Smith associated with revolution of the planets and the measuring of time. Um, you know, I challenge anyone to look at this and tell me what about this figure suggests that it represents the revolution of planets. Dr. Rittner says that it has nothing to do with the heavens, but he is contradicted by Lewis Spence in a book called Ancient Egyptian Myths and Legends, which said that Sokar typified the revolution of the sun. He's contradicted by this website, the revolution of the sun and other celestial bodies was symbolized. And he's contradicted by this website that says that Sokar mirrors the revolution of the sun, planets, or other celestial bodies. I mean, this is just astonishing. Again, I would like anyone to explain to me how Joseph Smith got this right, how he captured this aspect of Sokar if he did not know the Egyptian associated with it. And how would he have known the Egyptian associated with it if it weren't the revelation? So let me just uh, summarize here. We, I was going to keep on going on this. I knew I'd run out of time, but um, I'll stop sharing. The point is, no, you're not going to find a phrase-by-phrase -phrase rendering of the Egyptian into English. That's not what a Joseph Smith translation looks like. But it is evident as you go through these things that Joseph did know what he was looking at. And he captured the essential meaning of these figures in each of the of the uh, the things that he said. Okay, so 
it looks like I'm actually out of time here. That time's going up. So um, I will, I know I'm a little bit worked up now. I'm going to settle down. I'm going to turn it over to Paul and uh, enjoy what you have to say, Paul. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much, Brett. Or Mr. Dennis, which would you prefer? Uh, Br- Brett is fine. Brett is fine. Okay. You know, I want to keep it not too, uh, not too professional, you know, but I want to be respectful. You can, you can so. call me Paul as well. We, we call him Grand Paul. So that's more respectful than what we call him. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Brett. Appreciate it. Um, All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And sorry about the uh, technical difficulties, but uh, like I said, we'll try to be fair. And yeah. well, I appreciate that. Wonderful. It was my fault. I'll, I'll oh, no, it's, it. it's all good. We've, we, okay. we were doing a test stream earlier and we had some problems too. So, okay. all right. So thank you very much. I will reset the timer for 25 minutes and I will turn the time over to Paul for his opening statement. So Paul, I'll leave it to you. All right. First of all, I'd like to thank Brett for agreeing to this debate. Uh, as he mentioned, he and I have been discussing Mormonism on Facebook and through private messages for probably around seven or eight years now. Um, I appreciate your friendship, Brett, and I'm glad to finally talk to you live, even if it is just virtually. I'd also like to thank our audience for tuning in. I hope you enjoy tonight's debate and that it helps guide you into truth. So Brett and I, as he mentioned, began discussing the idea for holding this debate when he listened to the 13-hour Mormon Stories series of podcast episodes with Robert K. Rittner. Um, Just to give a quick background of who Dr. Rittner is, he is the professor of Egyptology at the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago and was from 1991 to 1996 the first Marilyn M. Simpson, Assistant Professor of Egyptology at Yale University. Dr. Rittner is the author of three books and over 100 publications on Egyptian religion, magic, medicine, language, and literature, as well as social and political history. So leave it to say that he knows what he's talking about when it comes to Egyptology. So our topic tonight is a question. Is the Book of Abraham ancient scripture? This question has two parts that have to be answered. The first is, is the book of Abraham ancient? And the second is, is it scripture? To answer this two-part question, we first must tackle a series of related questions in some depth. One, what is the book of Abraham? Two, how did it come to be? Three, what would it entail for it to be ancient? And what would it entail for for it to be scripture? And that last one has a corollary question. How has the church, the body of believers who have been saved by God through faith, historically recognized which writings constitute scripture with an uppercase S. So what is the book of Abraham? The book of Abraham is the English text that was produced by Joseph Smith and his scribes between 1835 and 1842. In my comments, I'll be, I'll be distinguishing between the English text and the Egyptian papyri that Joseph Smith possessed. To this day, each copy of the book of Abraham published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints contains the following introduction. Quote, the book of Abraham translated from the papyrus by Joseph Smith, a translation of some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt, the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt, called the book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyrus. That introduction is a combination of the introduction written in two of the English manuscripts produced by Smith and his scribes. The first scholars have labeled the book of Abraham manuscript C. It was produced sometime between July and November 1835 William W. Phelps was the scribe for this manuscript, and the introduction in his handwriting reads as follows. Translation of the Book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyrus, and found in the catacombs of Egypt. The second one scholars call Book of Abraham Manuscript and Explanation to accompany facsimile one. It is dated February 1842 and contains the English text for Abraham chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 18. Willard Richards was the scribe, and and it was copied from an earlier manuscript, 
likely in preparation as a printer's manuscript. In this text, the introduction reads as follows. A translation of some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt, purporting to be the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt, called the Book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyrus. Take note, from the purchase of the papyri onward, Joseph Smith told people that they contained the writings of the biblical patriarchs Abraham and Joseph. He not only told his followers this, but he told others who traveled to Nauvoo, Illinois, to see what the Latter-day Saints were building there and who viewed the mummies and papyri on display in Smith's mansion house. Talking about the Book of Abraham can get very complex very quickly. To keep things clear and to answer the question, what is the Book of Abraham, we have to first answer what it is and what it is not. The Book of Abraham is the modern English text produced by Joseph Smith between 1832 or 1835 and 1842. The Book of Abraham is not ancient. The Book of Abraham is not a translation, in any conventional sense of that word, of the Egyptian papyri possessed by Joseph Smith. The Egyptian papyri and mummies purchased by Smith and his colleagues are ancient artifacts that can now be authenticated by Egyptologists and understood in their proper context. How did the Book of Abraham come to be? We established in the opening that Michael Chandler sold some Egyptian mummies and papyri to Joseph Smith in 1835 and that Smith declared them to be the writings of the biblical patriarchs Abraham and Joseph. Prior to that, Chandler had displayed them in various exhibition halls and museums, first in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, then Baltimore, Maryland, then Lancaster, Harrisburg, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Cincinnati, Ohio, Louisville, Kentucky, Hudson, Cleveland, and finally in Kirtland, Ohio, selling off portions of the collection as he traveled. We must keep in mind that we are talking about authentic Egyptian relics and distinguish those from the inauthentic Book of Abraham, which is the English text produced by Joseph Smith. I expanded a bit on the prominence of the artifacts because no one in the United States in 1835 could read Egyptian. Had the papyri that made their way to Kirtland, Ohio and into the hands of Joseph Smith actually contained the writings of Abraham and Joseph, it would have been an amazing discovery. H. Michael Marcourt, an independent historian of Mormonism, contributed a chapter titled Joseph Smith's Egyptian Papers, A History, to Robert K. Rittner's book titled The Joseph Smith Egyptian Papyri, A Complete Edition. In his chapter, Marquardt said, quote, it would be a major discovery if the papyri contained mention of the patriarch Abraham and Joseph of Egypt. In fact, they would constitute the oldest authentic documents ever found regarding them. Here's the problem for Joseph Smith and his book of Abraham. They don't. What would it entail for it to be ancient? The Book of Abraham would have to be an authentic, literal translation of the content on the papyri possessed by Smith. For many years, the papyri were lost. They were thought to have been destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. As a result of this supposed loss, for almost a century, it was thought impossible to authenticate whether or not Smith's English text was an accurate translation of the content on the papyri. But in November of 1967, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City made a gift to the LDS Church of 10 papyrus fragments that had been part of the collection owned by Smith. These fragments are now identified by Egyptologists to date between 500 BC or 300 BC and 150 BC, far too late to have been written by Abraham's own hand upon papyrus. The fragments have nothing to do with the biblical patriarch Abraham. The LDS Church recently published a series of gospel topics essays aimed at helping its members understand and contextualize a number of difficult issues related to its history and doctrine. On July 8, 2014, the LDS Church published its essay titled, Translation and Historicity of the Book of Abraham. In this essay, it is admitted that, quote, none of the characters on the papyrus fragments mentioned Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the Book of Mormon, Book of Abraham, period, sorry. Mormon and non-Mormon Egyptologists agree 
that the characters on the fragments do not match the translation given in the Book of Abraham, though there is not unanimity even among non-Mormon scholars about the proper interpretation of the vignettes on these fragments. Scholars have identified the papyrus fragments as parts of standard funerary texts that were deposited with mummified bodies. In this section of my remarks, I've focused on the question, what would it entail for the Book of Abraham to be ancient? My answer to that question, and that of many who have investigated this matter, is that the English text produced by Smith would have to be authenticated as a valid translation of the Egyptian content on the papyrus into English. What I presented is evidence enough to demonstrate that such is not the case. Thus, the Book of Abraham is not ancient. Since the discovery of the papyrus fragments in 1967, there have been two major approaches taken by Mormon apologists in trying to account for the fact that the papyrus fragments clearly demonstrate that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian into English. The first approach can be called the missing scroll theory. This posits that the papyrus fragments were in fact part of the collection possessed by Smith, but that the Book of Abraham was translated from a longer scroll that is still missing. I recognize that Brett does not accept that theory, but I'm throwing it out there because it's one of the theories that apologists have put forth. The Kirtland Egyptian papers and the translation of facsimile one by Egyptologists have rendered this apologetic approach, the longer scroll theory, untenable. H. Mark, H. Michael Marcourt has written, quote, since 1967, most analyses of the Book of Abraham by LDS church members no longer argue for the work as a literal translation of an ancient text, and neither did Brett. Continuing the quote, the papyrus that contains the Egyptian characters appearing on the three translation manuscript is today preserved in the LDS archives. There, Marcourt refers to the Kirtland Egyptian papers, which are now published as part of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Anyone can find them with high-quality digital photographs with a simple Google search. These papers are important because they give us a pretty clear view of what Smith and his scribes thought they were doing in their translation process. They produced an Egyptian alphabet and grammar and thought they were producing a literal translation of the characters on the papyri. To quote Michael Marcourt about the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, he said, quote, the surviving manuscripts of this alphabet contain the Egyptian characters copied by Smith, Cowdery, Phelps, and later in November 1835 by a third scribe, Warren Parrish. Some of the characters were copied directly from the original papyrus, papyrus from the vignette or illustration of what Smith published in 1842 as facsimile number one of his Book of Abraham translation. The details can get hazy for those not familiar with this, but the takeaway here is this. Some of the characters in the alphabet and grammar were taken from the vignette published as, as facsimile one. When examined closely, the characters and their interpretation in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar can be tracked to the English text of the Book of Abraham Anyone can examine this for themselves, and I encourage all to do so. While the missing scroll theory is teetering precariously on the edge of the table, some recent Mormon, recent Mormon scholars take the position that the Book of Abraham does not consist of anything that is on the papyri at all. This has been termed the catalyst theory because it views the Egyptian artifacts as serving the purpose of catalyzing Joseph Smith into a revelatory state in which Mormon neo-apologists argue he received the English text of the Book of Abraham by inspiration from God. In an interview with scholar Terrell Givens, posted on the Faith Matters YouTube channel, Carrie Mielstein, professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University, and who also holds a PhD in Egyptology from UCLA, takes this position. Terrell Givens asks Mielstein, quote, do you believe that there are alternative ways of thinking about Joseph and his prophetic capacity that do not rely upon him being a successful translator of Egyptian in this case? Mielstein responds, quote, yeah, yeah, I think, um, that there's a possibility that he's not giving us anything on the papyri at all. The problem with that theory is that it's impossible to prove it wrong. 
there's no evidence that could you could run up against it. And it's the same with Brett's theory as well. So there are four takeaways. Mormon apologist Karen or Mormon apologist and Egyptologist Karen Muelstein here seems to move away from the missing scroll theory, which he has previously defended with another Mormon Egyptologist, John Yee. And in a recent uh, Mormon stories video, I think it was today, uh, there was a lot of talk about how John Gee is, is pushing up against the Joseph Smith Papers Project scholars, um, most of which have moved away from the missing scroll theory. So by taking this position, Mormon neo-apologists attempt to remove the Egyptian papyrus fragments from having any bearing on the question, could Joseph Smith translate Egyptian into English? By this, they also attempt to remove them from having any bearing on the question of whether or not the Book of Abraham is ancient scripture. And further, by taking this position, they cede the point that Smith was not a successful translator of Egyptian. What would it entail for the Book of Abraham to be scripture? The conclusion to the LDS Church's essay on the translation and historicity of the Book of Abraham states the following. The veracity and value of the Book of Abraham cannot be settled by scholarly debate concerning the book's translation and historicity. The book's status as scripture lies in the eternal truths it teaches and the powerful spirit it conveys. The Book of Abraham imparts profound truths about the nature of God, his relationship to his children, and the purpose of his mortal life. The truth of the Book of Abraham is ultimately found through careful study of its teachings, sincere prayer, and the confirmation of the Spirit. This asks people to dismiss the scholarly investigations into the veracity of the Book of Abraham and accept it as inspired scripture, despite its utter lack of historicity. In 2 Peter 1.16, we read, quote, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Within the narrative of the Bible, when God acted in history, he often commanded that stones be placed as memorials of the acts he had done. Protestant Christians take the view, stated plainly by R.C. Sproul, quote, The only source and norm for all Christian knowledge is Holy Scripture. This thematic statement introduces Descriptura Sacra, of Heinrich Heppe's classic work in the Reformed Dogmatics and provides a succinct expression of the Reformed Reformation slogan, Sola Scriptura. Two key words that are used to crystallize the sola character of scripture are source and norm. So it's important for us to answer the question, is the book of Abraham ancient scripture and is it scripture at all? Because scripture should be the source and norm for true beliefs about God if one is a believer in revealed religion. It's important to distinguish between and define some terms now. Those terms are scripture with an uppercase S and canon. Different groups hold to different canons of scripture and all scripture is canon for those communities that use a particular set of books. However, not all canon is scripture in the inspired sense of that word. Some scholars define any writing as scripture if it is accepted by a group to be inspired and they call it scripture because it is because it is accepted by the group to be a holy writing. Thus, the Book of Mormon the Bible, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price are all considered scripture for Latter-day Saints. However, this definition of scripture is inadequate, precisely because it equivocates between the two terms, canon and scripture. Scripture can be defined as those writings that are inspired, breathed out by God, and which are God's revelation of truth about himself and his plan of salvation for humanity. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 states, quote, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture, then, is the category that a writing is in, if it is, in fact, inspired by God. Canon can be defined as a technical term with several distinct components and may accordingly be defined 
as the closed list of books accepted retrospectively by a group as authoritative or binding for religious practice and doctrine. And that's from Peter W. Flint, uh, editor of the Bible at Qumran, Text, Shape, and Interpretation. Canon, then, is the set of books accepted by a particular group as authoritative. However, a writing's inclusion in any particular group's canon does not grant a writing the status of inspired scripture. Think of it this way. It is common in our culture now to say that truth is relative. There's your truth, there's my truth, but there's no such thing as ultimate truth. If such were applied to the concept of scripture, and it is by those who are careless with definitions, then we would say that there is Mormon scripture, lowercase s, and there is Christian scripture, lowercase s, but there is no ultimate scripture, uppercase s, that each group is dedicated to identifying, understanding, and integrating as truth, uppercase t, into their life of faith. But this is not the sense of scripture that the LDS Church wants us to have in mind when they claim that the book of Abraham is inspired scripture. They want us to accept their proposal that this writing was revealed by God. They want us to accept that it falls within the category of scripture, uppercase s. They want us to accept that the nature of God and man presented in the book of Abraham is truth, up, is truth uppercase t. Instead, or indeed, the book of Abraham is integral to Mormonism's unique view of anthropology, astronomy, and of a pre-mortal life of human spirits. So now the corollary question 4a, what has the church or how has the church, the body of believers who have been saved by God through faith, historically recognized which writings constitute scripture, uppercase S? Both Latter-day Saints and Protestant Christians accept the 66 books of the Protestant canon of the Bible as scripture, though for different reasons. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, additions to their canon can be made by common consent. Historically, that has meant that a resolution for an addition is put forth by LDS church leadership during a general conference and the resolution is accepted by the membership at the LDS Church. The last time that this took place was September 30th, 1978, when official declaration number two was added to the LDS canon. Protestant Christians accept the 66 books of the Bible because it is the result of the process of canon formation within the early church. In Jesus's day, it appears that a tripartite or three-part collection of scripture, collection of Hebrew scripture, was generally recognized as authoritative. The three parts were the Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Kethuvim, the writings. This seems to be evident in Luke 24, 44, where Jesus is recorded as saying, quote, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is also seems to be evident from a document among the Dead Sea Scrolls in Kate, uh, found among the Dead Sea Scrolls in a cave at Qumran, 4QMMT, the Mixat Maaseh HaTorah, the title of which can be translated as some precepts on the Torah or some rulings pertaining to the Torah. This document also contains a passage that seems to refer to the three-part Jewish canon. It reads, quote, surely for your good, we bring our words forward and we write to you to pay attention to the book of Moses and to the words of the prophets, as well as to David and the day-to-day -day chronicles through the ages. For Christians, the Jewish scriptures were accepted because they prophesied of Jesus Christ. The process of canon formation then largely has to do with which writings produced during that during and after the apostolic age would be considered canon. From a study of canon formation, we can see that the early church over a period of centuries applied a number of guidelines to identify authentic scripture and weed out those writings which are not. The Latter-day Saints should agree that this process of canon formation and the guidelines I am about to present resulted in the preservation of the New Testament for us today. The LDS Bible Dictionary, which is available as a study help on the church's website, states the following, quote, In the main, however, sound guidelines were established that helped to preserve the authoritative books. Among these rules were the following. One, 
Is it claimed that the document was written by a prophet or apostle? Two, is the content of the writing consistent with known and accepted doctrines of the faith? Three, is the document ready, already used and accepted by the church? By application of these tests, the books now contained in the Bible have been preserved, end quote. Tonight, I will be discussing four guidelines that the early Christians used to identify authentic, inspired writings, and I'll be implying, applying them to the Book of Abraham. These four criteria are discussed at greater length in many scholarly works on the formation of the biblical canon. I'm using the biblical canon, its origin, transmission, and authority by Lee Martin McDonald. Apostolicity is the first one. If a writing was believed to have been produced by an apostle, it was eventually accepted as sacred scripture and included in the New Testament canon. Was the Book of Abraham, the English texts, or the papyri fragments written by Abraham? No, but the English text presents it as a first-person account. It's safe to assume that if there were authentic writings of the biblical patriarch, patriarch Abraham, Mormon and Christian scholars alike would be interested in studying them. Even if the LDS Church admits that the Egyptian papyrus fragments that Smith owned, including facsimile one, are not about Abraham, so, so even the LDS Church admits this. So the Book of Abraham fall, fails the apostolicity test. Orthodoxy. Theological issues were a significant concern to the early church and played an important role in, the, in its development. This theological concern led to the early church employing the rule of faith as the criterion for orthodoxy to, de to determine which writings could be used in the church. Is the theology in the Book of Abraham consistent with the Old and New Testaments and the rule of faith of the early Christian church? Again, the answer is no. It is consistent with the theology of Joseph Smith, which he developed in his other writings between 1835 and 1842. In the Book of Abraham, Joseph Smith further develops his doctrine of a pre-mortal life and tries to make it seem that the ancient patriarchs knew of and believed in the doctrines of three degrees of glory in heaven, multiple gods, and plural marriage. These doctrines are not found among the ancients nor among the early Christians, so the Book of Abraham fails the orthodoxy test. Antiquity. So for the church, Jesus' ministry was the defining moment in history, so they looked to see if a writing was uh, old enough to be close to Jesus's ministry and his apostles' ministry. Is the book of Abraham, the English or the papyri fragments, sufficiently old enough to have been written by Abraham by his own hand upon papyrus? Assuredly not. The English text was produced by Joseph Smith in 1835 and 1842. The papyri fragments were produced by Egyptian scribes in 500 BC, between 500 BC and 150 BC. The Book of Abraham fails the antiquity test in that the papyrus fragments date to more than a millennium after Abraham lived. And then use. The regular use of writings in the ancient churches was also an important factor in their selection for the New Testament canon. The widespread use of the New Testament writings in the churches may have been the most determinative factor in the canonical process. Is there evidence that authentic writings of Abraham were used by the Jews or the early Christian church? Is there evidence that anything like the English text Smith produced existed anciently and was used by and considered canon by ancient Jews or Christians? No, there is not. The book of Abraham fails all four criteria. Therefore, it is not ancient and it is not scripture, uppercase S. I cede my time. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Paul, for your opening statement and for keeping the time. Appreciate that. Makes my job easier. <laughs> okay. So we have concluded the opening statement section of the debate. So now we will proceed with the rebuttal period of the debate. So each section of the rebuttal period will be 10 minutes in length. So for the first section, uh, Brett, he will be on the affirmative and he will be responding to the opposing opening statement uh, that Paul just gave. He will identify the areas of conflict and answer any questions that may have been raised by Paul. So let me just fix the timer. I should have done that before. So I'll set it for 10 minutes. 
uh, I will give a warning time at five minutes and an alert time at one minute. So I now turn the time over to Brett for his rebuttal period. Okay, thank you, Matthew. Um, yeah, so Paul's uh, opening statement basically focused on two questions. Is the book of Abraham ancient and is it scripture? Um, I'm just going to say with, uh, you know, maybe not as uh, thoroughly as, as um, I could because I, I don't have the MDiv that Paul has. Um, he's obviously gone through a lot of the, um, you know, Christian history and so on and so forth. But I can tell you from a Latter-day Saint point of view, we don't accept the same criteria for accepting scripture that, you know, the, the traditional Christians do. Um, Moroni's promise comes to my mind where uh, Moroni declares that if you study it out, if you pray, then the Holy Ghost will answer you as to whether it's scripture or not. So the things that Paul was talking about here, the things about orthodoxy, antiquity test and use, these all seem to be tradition. They're based on tradition. They don't appeal to any real authority. The only one that doesn't appeal to an authority was, was the book written by an apostle. And uh, while I think that that is actually probably a pretty good criteria for determining whether something is scripture or not, um, I think that the book of Abraham passes that test because I understand this is something that we're simply not going to agree on. I believe Joseph Smith was an apostle. So as the translation passed through his mind, um, as it uh, you know was revealed to him, it gained the apostolic stamp of approval. So that I think is is um, all I'm going to say about whether the book of Abraham is scripture or not. What I, what I want to focus on more is, is the book of Abraham ancient. Uh, Paul said in his remarks that the book of Abraham, modern English, trans, modern English text, is not a translation in any conventional sense of the word. Um, I, I, I think that was a direct quote. I'm you know, taking notes really quick here. But I want to focus in on that word conventional. Um, no one is saying here that the book of Abraham is a conventional translation. I didn't present that argument in my opening statement. Um, I don't think LDS apologists generally accept that view. And the book of Abraham essay on the church website pretty much takes that view as well, that it is not a conventional translation. But what I did show in my opening statement is that it is a translation in some sense of the word. And again, taking it back to the question that I asked initially, is there enough actual translation. Can we verify enough Egyptian running through Joseph Smith's translation work to be statistically significant? Um, and I, I believe the answer is yes. As I was going through uh, the facsimiles, I just started with figure one and I worked my way. I got as far as figure four. I could have gone through all seven that Joseph Smith attempted an explanation for. And then I was going to go back to, to facsimile one and I was going to show, yes, um, there's a crocodile there that Joseph Smith identifies as the God of Pharaoh. Dr. Rittner agrees with this. And you'll notice I'm not going to LDS apologists for these claims. I'm saying that Robert Rittner is confirming in most cases that these explanations are correct, even though he doesn't give credit at the time he says it. If you parse what he's saying carefully enough, you can see that the uh, explanations that Joseph Smith is giving are actual translations. So um, I don't want to get hung up on this word conventional. Uh, I, I think that um, that is an arbitrary uh, requirement. And what we're really looking for is evidence of inspiration. And if Joseph Smith could translate, which he showed that he could do, then it's not going to match a, a conventional scholarly translation. Um, want to call attention to the fact that Paul mentioned no one in 1835 could read Egyptian. That is true. Therefore, it becomes very difficult to point to the hits that Joseph Smith got in his um in his interpretations and say that he got it from a lexicon or that he got it from an Egyptian scholar because it simply didn't exist. No one could read Egyptian in 1835. It's only 
later now that we've been able to verify some of these things. Um, Paul says that the book of Abraham is not ancient because the translation doesn't match. Again, he's talking about more of a conventional uh, translation. I think I showed in my opening statement that it is ancient. I showed that it's ancient in the sense that Joseph Smith was actually able to capture the core essence of the Egyptian figures in the facsimiles. I showed that it's ancient by virtue of the fact that he recognized the astronomy of facsimile 2 was one of the uh, main um, uh, points of the of the solar disk, the, the hypocephalus. I showed that it's ancient by virtue of the fact that Joseph was going to other sources, such as the Apocalypse of Abraham, which is is may not date from the time of Abraham, but is certainly ancient and was un, inaccessible to him. Um, so, you know, it, I think what we're getting down to now is the definition of what do you mean by match? I think that the book of Abraham does match quite a few of the ancient documents that Joseph Smith was either seeing physically in front of him or seeing via revelation. Um, Paul talked a little bit about the catalyst theory. He mentioned a quote by Dr. Muelstein. He said, the possibility exists, and again, this, is, this might be a paraphrase because I was writing quickly. The possibility exists that the translation doesn't correlate with the text at all. Um, I would have to see what Dr. Muelstein meant by that in context. But Paul then went on to say that Brett's position is similar, that you can't correlate anything I said with the, uh, you can't correlate anything in the text of the book of Abraham with the papyrus. Um, I spent nearly all 25 minutes of my opening statement showing how the English of the book of Abraham correlates with the papyrus. So I, I don't think that point is valid. Paul mentioned the Kirtland Egyptian papers. I thought this would probably come up. The Kirtland Egyptian papers were a set of working notes that Joseph Smith used. Uh, this is one of the lines of evidence that ties the breathing permit of whore to the book of Abraham. And um, one of the, the criticisms of this document is, is that it, can, it contains the text of the book of Abraham with Egyptian characters running down the left-hand column. The Egyptian characters mismatch the ratio of the English words by a rate of, of about 1 to 25. But um, I want to read you this quote by David Whitmer. He said that he, this is referring to the Book of Mormon translation, but I think it applies equally to the Book of Abraham translation. He said, frequently one character would make two lines of manuscript while others made but a word or two words. Now, this, this is what we're seeing in the Kirtland Egyptian papers. And again, since Paul brought it up, this is why I'm addressing it. How can you have one Egyptian character creating two lines of manuscript? Again, this goes back to my opening statement. The theory is that Joseph Smith was able to translate the core essence of the Egyptian character, and he expanded it, he recontextualized it, he repurposed it, and he combined it with other sources. And I demonstrated what one of those other sources was, actually a couple other of those sources. So you remember I talked about how uh, the uh, altar was, which was confirmed by Dr. Robert Rittner as being an altar, also found uh, a parallel in the Apocalypse of Abraham, which Joseph Smith did not have access to, and it found parallels in the King James Bible. So when you have this, this one symbol, this altar, um, with all this other material tied into it, this can start to account for why there are there is so much English text for each Egyptian character. It happened in the Book of Mormon, and as we can see from the Kirtland Egyptian papers, it happened with the Book of Abraham. Um, and again, I believe I have given a plausible um, demonstration of how this could be. Um, finally, with my remaining time, I wanna address this point here. Joseph Smith said that the book of Abraham was written by his own hand upon papyrus. This is one evidence that Latter-day Saints cite as being evidence of a lost scroll, that um, unless you actually have text from Abraham, 
then this this criteria this criterion is not met. Um, I think that when you get into a study of the god Osiris, who was the god that was actually lying on the lion couch, in fact, simile one, you you begin to see that Osiris and Abraham are actually uh, related to each other. This this uh, was true in the Jewish religion, uh, as well as in the Joseph Smith papyrus. So, for example, Osiris was a substitute, I'm sorry, Abraham was a substitute for Osiris in Luke 16, the story of the rich young man and and Lazarus, or the rich man and Lazarus, uh, which many scholars believe was taken from uh, an Egyptian myth. And in that that story in Luke 16, Osiris in the Egyptian is Abraham in the the, uh, New Testament. So there, there are some correlations there between Abraham and Osiris, and uh, my time is up here, so I don't have time to get into that, but maybe we'll discuss it a little bit more later. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Brett. Appreciate you being conscious of the time. Uh, thank you for your rebuttal of Paul's opening statement. And so now we will move to Paul's turn now to have uh, 10 minutes to respond to the affirmative opening statement that Brett gave. So I will restart the timer, and you have 10 minutes, Paul. All right. First of all, I want to start out by uh, thanking Brett for his concessions that he made at the beginning of his opening statement. Uh, And I also want to apologize to Brett. I did not intend to uh, give the impression that I think you hold to the catalyst theory uh, or hold to the theory that nothing in the in Joseph Smith's uh, interpretations or the English text uh, aligns at all uh, with the Egyptian papyri. I know that's not your position from previous conversations that we've had, and I apologize if I gave that impression. Um, but that is the catalyst theory. That is uh, what what Carrie Mulestein was uh, presenting in the video with Givens. Um, but you mentioned, uh, I'm going to respond to a couple of things you mentioned um, just now, and then I'll respond to some of the items you mentioned in your in your opening statement. Uh, you mentioned the mismatch ratio between the number of Egyptian glyphs and the English words, and that that could be evidence that uh, we can't expect the Kirtland Egyptian papers to be a translation. Um, the problem with that is that Smith does seem to have believed that that one glyph could uh, expand out into many English words, and that was a conventional, uh, it was a contemporary understanding or thought about how Egyptian worked at the time of Joseph Smith, which was proven wrong with the discovery of the Rosetta Stone. And so what we see is Joseph Smith acting consistent with the, the contemporary understanding of how Egyptian worked in his time period. Um, so the problem with your approach, Brett, is that you you don't take into account what Joseph Smith and his scribes thought they were doing. Even if I were to grant, and I don't, that the English text was given to Smith via revelation, Smith Smith and his contemporaries still believed that he was revealing a translation of what was on the papyri. The Latter-day Saints have traditionally held to the position that Smith translated the actual characters on the papyri into English. This is consistent with what the traditional position has been on the Book of Mormon with regards to the golden plates as well that it is an English translation of the characters that were on the golden plates. Uh, while the golden plates can't be tested, the Book of Abraham can, and it fails. Uh, Brett's position is akin to imagining that Smith is an archer, uh, and he takes approximately 6,400 shots at the target and doesn't hit a bullseye once. But because there's a dozen arrows embedded in the hay bales behind the target, Smith should be believed as a translator. Uh, sorry, that just doesn't land for me. Um, so... That you mentioned that you know you, you honed in on my uh, use of the word uh, translation and 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 that I said that the Book of Abraham is not a translation of the papyri in any conventional sense of that word. Um, the reason I say that is because 
to to shift the narrative the way the LDS Church and apologists have done. Uh, it's a post hoc apologetic approach since 1967 when the papyrus fragments were found and shown not to be able to be translated into what Joseph Smith produced. Um, so it doesn't at all represent what Joseph Smith and his contemporaries believed they were doing or believed they were producing. Uh, you touched on facsimile one figure two, Osiris. Uh, you argued that the substitution of Abraham for Osiris happens in antiquity and the most notable example of that is the rich man and Lazarus narrative in Luke 16. Um, I wasn't aware of that until you had brought it to my attention on Facebook, but I did look into it a little bit. But I would ask you here if you think that, and, and I'm, this is rhetorical because it's my time, um, but I would ask you here if you think that Egyptologists had it wrong when they identify figure two as the prone image of Osiris. Uh, you would have us be impressed that Smith developed a narrative of Abraham praying for help from an image that Smith reconstructed incorrectly. And this is, I'm, I'm responding here to something else Brett has said elsewhere, where Smith re, uh, reconstructed Osiris's hands, and he argues that because that looks like the Egyptian prayer uh, glyph, that that Smith somehow understood something about Egyptian. But I don't find that uh, impressive, of all, impressive at all because he reconstructed the image incorrectly for the Egyptian. Um, and it's like if I completed a line drawing of a right angle, making it into a door with a woman walking through it, and then wrote a story about a woman walking through a door for a job interview, no one would find it impressive. That my, that my narrative described the scene that I had constructed from the original line drawing, because Brett believes that the, the, the glyphs matching uh, the narrative makes it impressive that, uh, oh, that Abraham supposedly was in a prayer stance, the Egyptian prayer stance, at the point where Abraham is praying in Joseph Smith's narrative. But Joseph Smith is creating all of that, so it's not impressive. And to close off a uh, critique of my rebuttal of this point, uh, uplifted hands as an image for prayer or worship is not unique to Egyptian practice at all, uh, as a quick look at the Bible will demonstrate. Brett also mentioned facsimile one figure nine, uh, claiming that Joseph correctly identifies the crocodile as the idolatrous god of Pharaoh, okay? Um, Brett's claim here would be that, how would Joseph Smith know that the crocodile would be a, an idolatrous god of Pharaoh? Well, very simply, he has been shown to have used Adam Clark's Bible commentary in his own translation of the Bible. And Adam Clark provides a likely source for Smith's understanding of the crocodile being an Egyptian deity connected with Pharaoh. Clark said, quote, it may be necessary to observe that all the Egyptian kings, whatever their own name was, took the surname of Pharaoh when they came to the throne, a name which in its general acceptation signified the same as king or monarch, but in its literal meaning as Beauchart has amply pr proved, it signifies a crocodile which being a sacred animal among the Egyptians, the word might be added to their kings in order to procure them the greater reverence and respect. So a contemporary source available to Joseph Smith identified the crocodile as, the, as a god of Pharaoh. So it's not at all impressive that Joseph Smith came up with that. Uh, Brett mentioned uh, fac, uh, facsimile one figure 10, uh, the identification of the lotus flowers on the altar as Abraham in Egypt. And he focused on this in, in uh, in relation to facsimile too, but um, the, the, the overall argument is that Joseph Smith identified the lotus flowers on the altar or stand, whichever you want to call it, uh, as Abraham in Egypt. And Brett sees this as reasonable in this context because uh, the lotus flower represents Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, so all of Egypt. So it it seems to be acceptable for Joseph Smith to have identified that symbol 
as Abraham in Egypt. Um, I find this to be among the weakest type of parallels that Brett makes. It's, it's this type of loose parallel that clearly shows Brett's approach to be smoke and mirrors. I'm not saying that Brett is intentionally deceiving. I think Brett is sincere in his desire to find reasons to believe Smith was a prophet and seer. But his approach is akin to saying, quote, don't look at the bare facts, look at this potentially shiny aspect instead. But the bare facts matter here because the fact that the lotus represents Egypt and Smith identified the lotus as Abraham in Egypt obscures the bare facts. Here is what renowned Egyptologist Robert K. Rittner says about the bare facts. Uh, in talking about the figures of facsimile one, Rittner says, the simple offering stand is figure 10, Abraham in Egypt, according to Smith. The Nile water, as explained as figure 12, Rao Ki Yang, signifying expanse or the firmament over our heads. But in this case, in relation to this subject, according to Smith, the Egyptians meant it to signify Shaomau, to be high or the heavens, answering to the Hebrew word Shaomayim, end quote. On the contrary, the Egyptian representation of the four, or the four supports of heaven is, and here Rittner alludes to a glyph that resembles four letter Y's standing next to one another and a transliteration from Egyptian that I do not know how to pronounce, but in any case, the figure that Smith identified as the pillars of heaven, according to Rittner, is the palace facade, because this image in particular comes from the Ptolemaic period, far too late to be written by Abraham or drawn by Abraham. And the Book of Abraham narrative that Smith translated into English claims that the facsimile one was drawn by Abraham. Abraham in first person refers his readers to that drawing in the text of the Book of Abraham. None of this stands up as ancient, Brett. None of it. Um, what Smith is doing here is he's using some of the Hebrew that he, he learned from Joshua Satius in 1836 in Kirtland, and he's doing some type of transliteration into Egyptian or saying it represents something in Egyptian, but it doesn't. Egyptologists agree that the, the Smith interpretations do not stand up. I'll see you the rest of my time. You're making, you're making it easy for me, Paul. This, uh, keeping us on, keeping us on time. All right. Excellent. So that ends our rebuttal period, our rebuttal session of the debate. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. Except when Michael's hangry, that is. Hangry, that is. Hangry, that is. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be. And the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. So now we are going to go to the cross-examination period. And this is... If debates go off of uh, off the rails, this is usually where it happens. So <laughs> hopefully uh, this will go well and smoothly. Um, uh, you're, you're both excellent debaters and you're respectful. So I, I, I have no fears that this will have any issues. But um, now so now we go into the cross-examination period. This is the time where 
each debate participant will be able to ask questions of their opponent. And what's important is that when it is when it is Brett's turn to ask Paul questions, we should focus on Brett asking the questions. And when it is Paul's turn to ask the questions, he will be the one asking questions. So the one who is being asked the questions may ask for clarification or something like that, but it is not their turn to ask questions. If they have questions, they should keep those for their cross-examination period. So each cross-examination period will be 20 minutes each, and each participant will have equal amount of time to probe the position of their opponent relative to the Book of Abraham's Antiquity. So uh, we will set the timer for 20 minutes for Brett's period. And as long as it goes smoothly, um, I'll just let you go and let Brett ask the questions. If it starts to get, if people start to talk over each other, then I'll ask to, you know, break up the fight. So I want a good, clean fight, fellas. Uh, no sucker punches, no kidney punches, no sand in the face. So let's have a good, uh, let's have a good discussion here. So I'll start the timer, uh, 20 minutes, and I'll turn the time over to Brett for his cross-examination period. Well, that's obviously why we're doing this virtually, so I can't throw sand in Paul's face. Um, all right. So I, I think I'm going to focus most of my cross-exs on Paul's latest statement here. Um, he said quite a, quite a few things, and I just want uh, clarification on, on some of it. So, Paul, you talked about... Uh, at the top of your last segment, you talked about how uh, Joseph Smith acted consistently with Egyptian understandings at the time that one character could expand to multiple lines of text. Okay, this was uh, actually an idea put forth by Athanasius Kircher, I think in like the, the 16th century or something like that. Um, so in, in my uh, opening statement, I uh, pointed out how the Apocalypse of Abraham was like was a likely source for some of the material in the Book of Abraham, and I, I listed the uh, one example where uh, we see Abraham sacrificing on an altar, and while he's doing that, he receives a vision of the heavens. Okay, so my first question to you, Paul, is: Do you do you accept that the Apocalypse of Abraham says what I represented it as saying? I understand you don't have it in front of you right now, but do you believe that that my presentation was consistent with that? And if not, do you have any any problems with what I said? I'd have to look into it. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, knowing what I know of you, I, I'm going to trust that you're representing the apocalypse of Abraham accurately. Okay. All right. Thank you. So if that's the case, then why does this not give evidence for uh, a model in which Joseph was combining themes from other sources. In other words, if you have source A that says Abraham was uh, sacrificing on an altar and received a revelation, and source B says Abraham was sacrificing on an altar and see, received the same kind of revelation, why can that, that not be seen as a parallel that is deliberate? So um, let, me, let me ask a question just to make sure I'm understanding what you're asking me. Sure. You, you want to know whether I see it as valid evidence that Smith was reproducing something that existed anciently. Not exactly. I want to know why it cannot be seen that way. I mean, you you seem okay, to so, believe. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so I guess what I would say there is that the knowledge of Abraham uh, being an astronomer, teaching astronomy to the Egyptians, is not something that was unavailable to Joseph Smith. It was available to him in Josephus as as well as probably. Adam Clark as well. And it is available to him in Adam Clark as well, where Adam Clark talks about the Chaldeans. So I don't, I don't think that, that this knowledge has to have come to Joseph Smith through some miraculous means. It was available to him contemporarily 
And I don't think it has to be seen as evidence that he was somehow reproducing something as a parallel to the apocalypse of Abraham. Okay. Do you know of any other sources where the sacrifice is um, is coupled with the revelation? And again, I'm I know you're not, any, no. I, I don't expect you to be a, an expert on this. I'm just wondering if you have you know information on that. Okay. So this is this no. is why I think Joseph was doing something different than what Athanasius Kircher was doing when he simply you know seemed to create gibberish in his explanations for a single uh, Egyptian glyph. All right. Um, you compare Joseph Smith to an archer who didn't hit the target once. So do you accept what I said about Dr. Rittner saying, for example, that uh, the figure in that, that I demonstrated, in fact, simile to figure two was an altar? Do you believe that that is an altar? Yes, I believe Dr. Rittner at one point in the book represents it as an altar. Okay. As, as this, um, just, just for clarity here, I, I, you know, I know um, you haven't prepared like I did, but um, the, that came from the interview. It came from part one of the interview. All right. Um, do you believe that when Dr. Rittner said that the God in the center of the hypocephalus is the creator God, do you accept that? Thinking back to what Dr. Rittner said about that in the interview, and it's been several months since I listened to it, uh, probably last summer when I first brought it to your attention. Um, no, I, I don't think it's as strong a parallel as you're presenting it. I didn't no, ask if it was I, a parallel. I, do, do you accept that Dr. Rittner said that this is the creator God? Yeah, I I, I uh, gave you a quote from the book and from the interview where he's saying this is the creator God in the middle of the figure. Okay, so it's Atum Re, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean it's the Egyptian creator God. Yes, but okay. did okay. We'll, we'll stop at that. Okay. All right. So, do you take exception then with Joseph Smith? saying that this is the first creation you is there a possible way that you can have a creation without a creator or vice versa i think that's a loaded loaded statement uh first creation with with regards to joseph smith's theology um so you know joseph smith doesn't believe and mormonism doesn't believe in a first creation right in the in the sense that that term represents mormonism believes in a creation ex materia and multiple creations ex materia as gods upon gods become gods. So I'm not sure where you're going with the question okay. here. because The question is, is it reasonable to associate a creator with a creation? Sure. Okay. So this is what, this is what uh, I, I just want to want to put that out there again. Like I said, in my opening statement, you can make it what you will, but Dr. Rittner said that the figure in the center of the hypocephalus is a creator. Joseph Smith said it was the first creation. Whether, you know, how that fits into our theology is really beyond the scope of this discussion, but I just, just want to get that out there. Okay. So uh, I just like to clarify that. Okay. Um, you're, you're right to say that you can't have a creation without a creator, but to count this as a hit for Smith because he identified it as the first creation and it's actually the uh, god Atum Re, the Egyptian god Atum Re, who for them is the creator. I don't know that that's a hit. Can you? I, I can't. I can't ask questions. I'll ask you with that question later. Okay. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Um, moving on to figure two. Um, Joseph Smith said that the, the God in that figure was holding the key of power. Again, this is, this is from my opening statement. Doctor Rittner said that there are gods in similar hypocephali that uh, hold a was scepter, which is a symbol of power. Again, if you go to the Wikipedia page, look up was scepter, you see that it says that this is, this represents power. So the figure is holding a wasp scepter. Joseph Smith said it was the key of power. 
and the Wasepper represents power. Why do you not consider this a hit? Because I think it's simple enough for a person to recognize what a scepter is and understand that that was a symbol of power, both anciently and very close to Joseph Smith's uh, day uh, with, with kings and monarchs all throughout history. I don't okay. think that that is necessarily a hit. So your basic position is then that he guessed correctly, but that it was a guess. Is that right? Yes. Okay. All right. Um, and I just want to, I want to, want to draw that distinction here because uh, many people say that Joseph didn't get anything right at all in his explanations, which is very different than saying he guessed right. Right. And I don't, and I want to clarify my, my Archer analogy, right? So I don't, I'm not saying he didn't get anything right in terms of, did he connect something like, like a, the, a scepter of power to a similar image and an understanding of the Egyptian glyph? Sure. He did that on, on a couple of occasions. Sure. But did he identify those glyphs correctly as what they were and what they represent for Egyptian. No, he did not. He did not. It's not a literal translation um, of the glyphs. The, the the book of Abraham is not that. So so that 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 analogy, does he ever represent the Egyptian as it actually is? No, he does not. Does he have some arrows in the hay bales behind that you grab onto and say, well, it's close enough? Yeah, he's got those. But that's not a hit. That's not a bullseye. Okay. Thank you for your response. Let's go to figure three. Um, I, I demonstrated in my opening statement that the there was a missing portion of the hypocephalus, a lacuna in the original document that Joseph Smith had. He had to fill in the details. The, the way he filled in figure three was he took a fig, he took the sun god ray sitting on his bark and he pasted it in to the hypocephalus. Dr. Rittner concedes that the hypocephalus, as it originally stood, had either one bark, one boat, or two, and that on that bark was the sun god, Ray, or Ra, however you, you say his name. And so uh, Joseph Smith's uh, pasting of the sun god on his bark into that location seems pretty striking to me. How do you explain that? Um I don't know. I wasn't there when Joseph Smith was reconstructing what was damaged. I don't know what he had that, uh, you know, I can imagine a, a piece of papyrus that fragments and there's a piece that he has to recon reconstruct because the, the fragmented piece is so damaged that it won't do to paste it aside where it belongs. So he reconstructs it. And that's a possibility, right? You don't, you don't know that he didn't have that as it stood, but wasn't able to represent the whole because of the damage to the papyrus. So that's how I would explain that. And I would also add that it's not impressive to me because other places where he reconstructed the, the, the papyrus fragments, he reconstructed them wrong. Okay. Depending on how you say wrong. Um, yeah, I, I guess it just depends on your criteria. I think he's getting a lot right here. I think he's getting a lot more right than he should be getting if he didn't know Egyptian. All right. Mm -hmm. Moving on to figure four which is the uh, the hawk on the boat. This is the god Seker. And that's all it is. It's just this hawk sitting on a boat. Joseph Smith associated this with the revolution of the planets. I gave three different sources, uh, two websites, as well as a statement from Louis Spence in his book, Ancient Egyptian Myths and Legends, that show that Seker, or Sokar, however you say it, was uh, indeed associated with the revolution of planets. Is there anything in this figure of Seker on his boat that suggests the revolution of heavenly bodies to you? No, not to me when you were presenting that. No. And and 
I'll just preface this by or just state that I didn't I didn't prepare uh, against your notes on on this particular mm -hmm. image. So I would have to look at it more deeply to see. Okay. Okay. That's a fair response. That's a fair response. Um, and yeah, yeah, I know I'm taking you by surprise on a lot of this stuff, but um, this this is why I take exception with the Archer analogy. I think that there is there's just too too consistent of a thread of actual Egyptian running through these these characters to be uh, done by chance. Okay, so I, I'm just gonna I'll leave that one for now and move on to your next statement here. Uh, you talked about how the approaches to the Book of Abraham today are post hoc, which is true. Post hoc just means after the fact. So additional information has come to us after the fact, since we discovered the papyrus in 1967, and it's uh, caused us to reevaluate things. Um, as long as we are reevaluating things according to evidence, I think that post hoc uh, approaches you know, aren't necessarily bad. Um, I, I, I understand what you're saying by this. What you're saying is that um, you know, if, if you are struggling to justify a position that you've already decided on, then a lot of times people will use post hoc explanations to uh, avoid a position of being falsified. Will you concede, Paul, that um, coming up with an explanation after the fact, as long as it's based in evidence, is not unsound? Yes, I will agree with that. However, uh, the, the uh, catalyst theory or, or, or even your theory uh, does bump up against the evidence, as I stated, of what Joseph Smith and his contemporaries appear to have believed they were doing, and what Joseph Smith himself presented the papyrus as being, which is the writings of Abraham. Okay, thank you. Oh, let's see here. You uh, have the advantage here that I have uh, had Facebook discussions with you about some of this stuff. I do want to, um, if I could share the screen again, because you brought up the uplifted hands on altar uh, on the altar, in fact, simile one. Give me a second here. I'm just going to share my screen. And I want to, let's see, get out of this. Can you see my screen, by the way? Is this going to result in a question for me? It will. Okay. Here we're having the same problem again. Can you see my screen? No. Okay. <sighs> so let me try this again. And I guess it's fair that you get this since I introduced it into the discussion. <laughs> I would have brought it up if you hadn't. <laughs> here we are again. Okay. I, I'm, I'm just going to, I'll skip the, the, the graphic, but I will uh, just describe it. Maybe I'll be able to bring it up later. Um, you said that uh, Joseph Smith reconstructed facsimile one incorrectly. Um, Dr. Ritter himself presented a graphic in part three of his interview where his own colleague, Lanny Bell, uh, produced a reconstruction of his own that had the Osiris slash Abraham figure with both hands upraised. First of all, were you aware of that? Yes, I am. Okay. So given that Lanny Bell, Dr. Rittner's colleague, has uh, produced a, a uh, figure with both hands upraised and in indicating that he believes it very likely and plausible that the, the uh, figure on the lion couch did have both hands in the air, uh, does that call into question the certainty of the fact that most that, that the figure should have been reconstructed with only one hand in the air. No. Why not? Because there are many other uh, extant papyrus fragments of this drawing that have the opposite or have the, the, the other understanding. So it, does it represent potentially one? Maybe, but it doesn't represent the many, many, many others. And I believe Rittner made this point from, from uh, the catacombs of Egypt that, that show otherwise. So, okay. 
So in other words, I would, you I would have to look into I would have to look into more into Lanny Bell's evidence and, and what he did to reconstruct that. OK. All right. So so at first you're saying that, that no, it's not. You're, you're sounding like you reject what Lanny Bell did. And now you're saying that it, is, it is possible that Lanny Bell has created an accurate understanding of the papyrus. Is that is that fair? Again, I said I'd have to look into Lanny Bell's evidence for that. But what I am aware of is that the many other papyrus fragments of this same uh, image do not have two upgrade, upraised hands. Okay. Okay. I can see that. I'll see what else we have here. Ah, okay. Adam Clark. And once again, when I tried to share the screen, I lost my timer. Uh, how much time do we have left? So, yeah. Can you hear me? There's about a minute and I'll give about two minutes. About two minutes. Okay. Yep. Let's talk about Adam Clark. You pointed to an Adam Clark quote that said that uh, the pharaoh signifies crocodile. Now, Joseph Smith did not exactly say that the, the crocodile or that the pharaoh signifies crocodile or vice versa. The crocodile signifies pharaoh. Here's what he actually said from Abraham 1 verse 20. He said, pharaoh signifies king by royal blood. And this actually, in my view, is pretty close to the actual Egyptian interpretation of um, the uh, pharaoh, which means great house. So um, pharaoh means great house. Here he's saying king, which means great, by royal blood, and which is, is a good description of a house, the, the people that you live with. Um, Joseph did not say that it signifies a crocodile. So if, if Joseph is following Adam Clark, why didn't he say here in Abraham 120 that Pharaoh signifies a crocodile? Why did he say it signifies king by royal blood? Okay, I'm sorry, you, step, you stepped away from the actual uh, figure in Joseph's representation uh, that I was referring to, which is on facsimile one, uh, figure nine. Where, yeah. where Smith identifies the crocodile as the idolatrous god of Pharaoh. So I wasn't right. referring to, to the verse in the text of Abraham that you were referring to, but it also is consistent with what Clark says about Egyptian kings uh, and the name and the surname of Pharaoh. Um, but the point I was making is simply that uh, the, the knowledge that a crocodile was a god of the Egyptians connected specifically with Pharaoh um, that's the point I was making that, that it's not necessary to assume that Smith got that by revelation because he simply could have gotten it from Adam Clark. Okay. Do you, uh, do you have the, the quote from Adam Clark there and would you be willing to read it again? Yeah. It may be necessary to observe that all the Egyptian Kings, whatever their own name was, took the surname of Pharaoh when they came to the throne, a name, which is it, which in its general acceptation, it signified the same as King or Monarch, but in its literal meaning, as Beauchart has amply proved, it signifies a crocodile which being a sacred animal among the Egyptians, the word might be added to their kings in order to procure them a greater reverence and respect. Okay. And is there anything in, and elsewhere in Clark, he, he identifies the crocodile as, a, as an, as an idolatrous God of not, not in those specific terms, but as a God connected with Pharaoh. Okay. That was going to be my question. Where did, did Clark actually refer to the crocodile as a God? All right. I mean, in that okay, that's read a divine animal, right? <laughs> a sacred animal is what he says. A sacred animal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And, and elsewhere okay. in elsewhere in Clark, all over the place, he references all kinds of animals that were viewed as divine and as gods by the Egyptians. So it was knowledge easily accessible for Joseph Smith. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, we're, thank you. we're we're about a minute over. Sorry. Okay. The our timer that we have apparently has a time limit, so it kicked itself out. So <laughs> okay, I, I, I was looking for. Game. I couldn't see it. So it's it's in the waiting room now. Okay. Yeah, it should be up now. So uh, I think I have to send you the link again, Matthew. Hang on. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Paul, I'll, I'll add an extra minute to your um, cross-examination period so that it's, it's even. 
okay. So should be in. Okay, there's the link. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that. Um, for that cross-examination period. Appreciate it. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Appreciate your being patient and uh, accommodating. So now we will go to Paul for his uh, 21 minute uh, cross-examination period. Um, so yeah, so I'll turn it over to you, Paul. Oh wait, hold on. I gotta, I gotta fix the timer. Add an extra minute. All the settings reset. Okay. Um, turning over to you, Paul. All right. So you conceded that the English text of the book of Abraham is in no way a literal translation of the Egyptian on the papyrus. Do I understand you to be making that concession correctly? I said that it is not a direct literal translation, but that it may be a translation in some sense of the word. Okay. That's um, with regards to the Kirtland Egyptian papers, mm -hmm. uh, do you believe they have connection to the book of Abraham text, specifically Abraham chapter one? I and do. if so, what? Uh, well, that, that actually is why I brought up the quote of um, David Whitmer a little earlier that said that one character can expand into multiple lines of text. Uh, Athanasius Percher, notwithstanding, I, be I believe there is evidence that that was going on in the Joseph Smith translation. There was a paper that I actually really like. It's been um, kind of dismissed in the LDS apologetic community, but it came out in the late 60s by originally Crapo and John Tvetinus, where they identified uh, parallels with each of the characters in the uh, Kirtland Egyptian papers that were juxtaposed next to the, the verse in the book of Abraham. So um, you, you can read that paper if you'd like to. I think it's really interesting, um, but it, I, I believe it shows that uh, there is a relationship, an actual relationship between those characters in the KEP and the text of the book of Abraham. And, okay, so definitely I agree with you on that. My next question to that would be, is Joseph Smith's interpretation, translation, whatever you want to call it, that the text that he sets side by side with those characters, is it an accurate representation of the, what the Egyptian characters mean? Yes, in the sense that I uh, described before, in the sense that uh, the Egyptian appears in the English. There are many words in the English that do not appear in the Egyptian, but each, each uh, character in the Egyptian appears in the English. So, for example, uh, Joseph juxtaposed uh, the, the word for ma'at, which is justice, next to, uh, I can't remember the verse exactly, but it's, it is a verse that talks about the justice of Pharaoh. And uh, Joseph described the justice of Pharaoh. If you go to the Wikipedia page, it says the ma'at is particularly associated with, it, it's the word that means justice, and it's particularly associated with Pharaoh. So, um, I do believe that there is a correlation between the Egyptian and the English in every case. Every case? Every case. Some okay. of them are easier to see than others. I mean, I'll grant you that if you take, the problem I have in this discussion is, is that when I, when I present this evidence, people will always gravitate toward the ones that are the most questionable. And there are some ones that I, you know, if I just saw in isolation would be questionable. But um, if you consider the symbolism and the spiritual meanings of the, of the Egyptian characters, I believe there is a correlation in the English in every case, yes. Okay. Uh, is shalmau an Egyptian word? No, it is uh, shaman, Joseph... probably, probably what you're going for here. Um, and it is the singular of the Hebrew shamayim, which refers to the heavens. Uh, I, I, I will credit uh, Robert Boylan for giving me this information right before this debate, but there is a uh, psalm, and you can, if you want me to look it up really quick, I will, but we'll, we'll just go in general terms at the moment. There is a psalm that the King James translation translates Shemal in the Hebrew as his name. But if you vocalize it a little bit differently, it becomes Shema, which is the singular form of heaven. 
Now, uh, again, it's a, it's, it is a Hebrew word. It is a, you know, in this uh, analysis, it is a legitimate Hebrew singular, which may only appear once in the Hebrew Bible, because in other, all the other cases, it, it uses the dual form Shemayim. Okay, uh, I'll ask again. Yeah. Is it an Egyptian word? No, it is not Egyptian. It's Hebrew. No. Did Joseph Smith represent Shalmau as an Egyptian word? Uh, take a look. He says, in, in relation to this subject, the Egyptians meant it to signify Shema, to be high, or the heavens, answering to the Hebrew word Shamayim. Or Shamayim, yeah. So, um, I, I don't know if he's actually presenting it as an Egyptian word here. He does explicitly say that it's a Hebrew word, Shamayim, um, and so I think it's reasonable to connect this word to the Hebrew. Okay, so, so you don't believe that Smith is there saying Shamayim is the Egyptian cognate? To Shemayim. I don't know. I, uh, that's, what it looks I, I, like to, that's what it looks like to me okay. and many others. So, okay. um, verse uh, Abraham chapter 1, verses 12 to 14 uh, say, quote, And it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me, that they might slay me also, as they did those virgins upon this altar, and that you may have a knowledge of this altar. I will refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record. Is it your position then that facsimile one was drawn by Abraham's himself and referred to by Abraham himself as part of his own autobiography? Uh, probably not. I believe that uh, it may, you know, possibly represent an earlier image that was uh, constructed by Abraham. But this is obviously Egyptian from like the second century AD to the second century BC. I mean, in, in its most literal form. What's your position on the portions of the book of Abraham that basically copy the Genesis account of Abraham changing the pronouns to first person? Uh, book of Abraham 2, 1 to 25, parallels Genesis 11, 28 to 12, uh, and 13. Do you believe Smith possessed papyri, papyri that contained uh, the first person account of Abraham? Uh, <clears throat> no. What I believe is uh, what I mentioned earlier in this discussion, which was that Joseph was uh, taking the Egyptian from the papyrus, and he was combining it with other sources. I don't think there is an Egyptian document that exactly runs parallel to Genesis. I think it was an expansion by Joseph Smith. And again, remember the model that I presented was that Joseph captured the core meaning of the Egyptian, and then he expanded it, recontextualized it, repurposed it, and combined it with other sources. I think the King James Bible is one of the sources that he combined it with. Do you believe that Joseph Smith believed that he had papyri with the writings of Abraham and Joseph on them? That's a tough one. Um, I can't answer that question. Okay. I think I it's think a critical that, question. Um, well, I think that um, maybe, maybe not. I think that when you consider the, the information that Joseph had about Abraham, such as from the apocalypse of Abraham and other sources that he did not have access to, I think it's clear that he was receiving revelations about Abraham and about Abrahamic writings. Um, if he was simply using the papyrus in his possession to represent those writings, I, I, I you know, I think that's um, acceptable because he is clearly demonstrating revelation in other, you know, aspects of his writings, and that that needs to be accounted for. So it may simply be part of the genre that he is um, engaging in. But you know, on uh, on the other hand, uh, it could be that he was just a conduit and that that uh, the Lord just poured information into his head and he actually believed that, uh, you know, one symbol could actually expand to two lines of text or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. 
it's it's very difficult to read his mind on the subject. I, I I agree with you. It's difficult to read the mind of a of a historical figure, but I think there's plenty of evidence to show that he did believe he had the writings of Abraham, uh, unless he didn't and was simply presenting it that way, uh, which would make him a fraud. Um, but I don't want to go there because I don't I don't think it's necessarily uh, charitable to do so. But it is a possibility uh, because he does he does present uh, what he had as being the writings of Abraham and Joseph. Okay, I appreciate your politeness here. My my take on this is, um, you know, if you're going to whether you call it a fraud or you just say that he was mistaken, there's still too much that you have to account for. There there is so much in this work that looks revelatory, that looks like it came from the inspiration of heaven, and it's it's difficult to prove, um, you know, divine intervention. Because, you know, you, you can't prove God. Um, but I think you can get to a point where uh, no other mundane explanation makes sense. So that's where I can. Okay, well, I, I, where I think we are realistically is at a point where there are mundane explanations. Uh, the evidence shows that he didn't have the writings of Abraham and Joseph. He represented what he had as that. Um, and so whether he was mistaken or not, uh, it it's the evidence is clear that it's 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 not inspiration or revelatory um in my book so i'll move on to the next question take the questions yeah um uh so i think you i think you would concede that you agree with the the lds church's recent assessment that i read in my opening opening statement that none of the characters on the papyrus fragments mention abraham or any of the events the events recorded in the book of abraham yes yes and i mentioned that in my okay um so Joseph Smith did present the papyrus papyri that he had as being the writings of Abraham and Joseph, though he never published anything from the Book of Job with Joseph. Um, so I'm going to present I'm going to present you with a with an analogy related to that and ask you to respond to it. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. So if you do a Google search for the LDS Church's Gospel Topics essay on the Book of Abraham, and if you open the link in your phone's browser rather than in the Gospel Library app. You can then click on the reader view in your browser and see that the essay is attributed to Elder Neil A. Maxwell. And for our listeners, he is a now uh, passed on leader of the LDS Church. Um, So given that we know that this essay was first published more than a decade after Maxwell's death, do you trust this attribution to him as author? Why or why not? And what would you want to see to authenticate that Neil A. Maxwell was indeed the author of that essay? Um, you say that who, who was it that, that's making the claim that Neil A. Maxwell was the author? It's uh, if you do if you Google search for the top for the essay and you do it on your phone. I, I was kind of surprised to find this myself. Uh, when you click on the link to the essay on the church's website from your phone, it gives you the option to either open the gospel the LDS Gospel Library app, which I have on my phone, or to open it with your browser. If you open it with your browser, you can click on. Uh, the reader view in your browser, which uh, makes the text a little bit bigger for you to read. And when you click on that reader view, the attribution shows the author is Neil A. Maxwell. Okay, that's interesting. If this is an official church publication, I would say that uh, there are people who obviously were familiar with Elder Maxwell prior to his death. Um, and I would say they, they are in a position to know what contributions Elder Maxwell had to this essay. As far as I know, it was completely unattributed. Uh, but I would believe that Elder Maxwell contributed to the essay if it if it if it says so. I, I believe there are probably other contributors as well. But 
I could I could be persuaded to believe that. Yes. Okay. Would you Would you want to see any evidence that he wrote it? It would be nice. Sure. I, I mean, I'm, it's not, not nothing that I'm going to uh, you know be calling up church headquarters for. But um, I would like to know you know why why the statement was made. Sure. Why would the evidence be important? The evidence is always important. I mean, this is this is I, how you form. I agree. This is how you form conclusions. You you look at evidence. You draw conclusions. I agree. And I mean, in this the case, in this is case. Important. I think maybe the, the thrust of your question is, you know, why is it important to know if Elder Maxwell was the author? Um, and there are probably a couple reasons for that. He was an apostle. So, you know, there may be statements in there that carry more apostolic weight if an apostle wrote them than, than otherwise. Um, he's respected in a certain way in the church and in a way, you know, maybe that a BYU scholar is not. Uh, so it would be useful to know if he was the author for that reason. There are various reasons you might want to know who wrote the the essay. Yeah, I I agree, and I I think that the evidence you would like to see for that is similar to the evidence that many would like to see for the Book of Abraham actually being written by Abraham. Okay, because sure. if it was, if it was, it'd be a big deal, but it's not. Well, um, I, I, I don't know. We've established that it's not. I think that um, you know there are various transformations that could have been made from the time that Abraham wrote the document four thousand years ago to the time that it it ended up in its present form. We can't comment on those because there, there isn't evidence for them, but it is a position that many hold. And I think it is a, uh, you know, it's a reasonable one if you believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet. But yeah, you're right. You're right, Paul. You, <laughs> there's not going to be a smoking gun that says, uh, you know, that you can verify from 4,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago, whenever it was, 4,000 years ago, I guess, it's closer, that where, where some you know, fragment is unearthed with the exact text of the book of Abraham and his little signature there that we can verify as the signature of Abraham. That That is, it's like I said at the top here, it's very difficult to validate historically events and individuals that, that lived that long ago. Right. And that's true that in the is, Bible. That's true of the Bible yeah. as well. You know, that is Joseph, but that is Joseph Smith's claim with regard to the book of Abraham. And the evidence now shows that not to be the case. Um, I think the evidence is insufficient to say one way or the other. That's how I would come down. But, but you do agree that he presented the papyrus that he had as the writings of Abraham by his own hand upon papyrus. Yes, I agree. I agree that that statement is in there. Okay. The, uh, <clears throat> the Gospel Topics essay states, quote, The Book of Abraham was first published in 1842 and was canonized as part of the Pearl of Great Price in 1880. The book originated with Egyptian papyri that Joseph Smith translated Beginning in 1835, many people saw the papyri, but no eyewitnesses account of the trans no eyewitness account of the translation survives, making it impossible to reconstruct the process. Only small fragments of the long papyrus scrolls once in Joseph Smith's possession exist today. The relationship between those fragments and the text we have today is largely a matter of conjecture. End quote. So set aside the fact that there are eyewitness accounts of the Book of Abraham translation process from Smith's scribes. Uh, suppose that someone published a paper claiming that they had found the record of an eyewitness to the translation process that proved that the relationship between the extant fragments and the English text that we have today is no longer a matter of conjecture. What would you want to see to validate that claim? Uh, I would, I would, this is a, a, you know, highly hypothetical question. And I think there are a lot of different factors that uh, may play into this, but I, I would simply start by asking what is the nature of your evidence? I would say, okay, what what is the document that you have, have shown here? You know, we gotta rule out the possibility that it's a Mark Hoffman style forgery, first of all, um, which may be difficult to do, but you know, suppose it could be validated. Then I would just like to see what is uh, what does the document say? And then I would take it from there and 
evaluated as it comes. But that may not answer your question. Maybe you can be more specific. No, you're good. Okay. Um, you mentioned Mark Hoffman. What? You may, maybe you're familiar. Maybe you're not. I don't know. What What was it that gave away his forgeries? Uh, he started bombing people, as I recall. And uh, I don't. Yeah, uh, but what was it that allowed uh, investigators to begin to recognize uh, documents that he had uh, sold as forgeries? Uh, you're asking me to go back to my memory bank here. Um, I know after they started investigating him, they actually found the basement where he was working on his forgeries. Um, I believe one of this one of the things that made him suspect was that he was, you know, finding a rare, valuable discovery every other month. I think that's one of the things that called into question his. That's uh, one of the things, yes. But primarily, it was it was the ink, okay? Because the ink the ink that he was using uh, to try to recreate ink from the period of Joseph Smith and his contemporaries. Um, it cracked in ways that uh, the ink from that period would not have, which demonstrated okay. that it was a recreation. Okay. Um, so it demonstrated that his forgeries did not actually date to the period that he claimed they did. Um, do you think that that evidence is important or has any relevance to our discussion tonight about the Book of Abraham? About the ink of Mark Hoffman's work? Not the ink per se, but about uh, a base text not actually dating to the period that Joseph Smith said that it did. Obviously, I think evidence is important here. And I think the evidence that we're dealing with is that Joseph Smith had information about Abraham and Abrahamic writings that he only could have obtained through revelation. I think that's what the evidence shows. I think that's what, you know, the, the smoking gun says. What what then do you make of, of the quote that I read to you then about Pharaoh and the cro crocodile from Adam Clark? That, that doesn't come only from revelation. It comes from a source available to Joseph Smith? Well, okay, first of all, you're, you're, you're focusing on one aspect, one, one simple uh, explanation of one figure. Uh, what I'm, the, the case that I'm making, and that, you know, I started sure, making- I, I didn't prepare other figures of yours, well, that okay, you, okay. other parallels of yours that you I understand. That I didn't present because of time. I understand, I understand. But the, the, the case that I'm making here is that these hits are consistent all the way through the facsimiles and even the text of the Book of Abraham. So, um, I don't think you're going to be able to go to Adam Clark in each one of these cases and say, you know, this was the source. And sure, even if it isn't not, Adam Clark, there's no evidence that Joseph. Sure, maybe him. maybe not Adam Clark, but I mean, what what Smith says about Rao Kiang and the and the firmament and 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 you make that out to be a hit because he supposedly understood that the Egyptians uh, viewed heavens as waters. Well, I mean, all you have to do to go to find that is go to Genesis one. It's, it's very readily available to him. So maybe not Adam Clark in every instance, but certainly places that are readily available to him to understand ancient Near East uh, understandings of things. Okay, I didn't okay. quite get your point there about Genesis, but anyway, it looks like our time is up. Right. Yep, time in Genesis, up. waters above, waters beneath, that could simply be the source that Joseph understood how the ancients viewed the heavens. Okay. okay. Thank you, gentlemen, uh, for that period, uh, for that cross-examination session. So now we will continue on to the audience questions. So the participants will be asked questions from the audience. So there have been several that have been submitted uh, via YouTube comments and uh, our host, Michael, he will be the one to ask those questions. So we're hoping that the questions can be related to the topic at hand and that they'll be focused. And so we're going to kind of be a little bit uh, more flexible with time on this section. Uh, we want to allow both participants to be able to answer the questions if they so choose. So 
if the if the answers start to get a little bit too long, though, um, we might cut in and, and say, OK, it's time to move on to the next question. But we'll allow at least a couple minutes to answer the question. And then if the other participant wants to answer, then they're free to do so. So I'll turn the time over now to Michael and he will be asking questions from the audience. All right. Did you guys, uh, did you want me to share my screen so you can see the questions while I'm reading them? That would be awesome. Uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Let me see if I can do that real quick. Um, I saw it on here a minute ago, the share screen option, and now I don't see it. It should be at the bottom. If you roll your cursor down there, it'll pop up more. Oh, there it is. Yep. See how this works here. Okay. So I see myself. It's like a mirror. Okay. Just focus on the right side of the screen. Uh, can you see the questions? Can you see the chat? Yep. I can okay. see Great. You can, also, you can also pause the video, Michael. That might help to keep it from being confusing. Awesome. <laughs> Sounds freeze on your face. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Let me find the first question here. They're kind of uh, mixed in here. Okay. So this question is actually for Paul first. Most of these are going to be for Brett, but this one's for Paul. Uh, it's really interesting that there are examples of Joseph's translations of the papyri to be correct, uh, like the, the scepter, without being an Egyptologist. How did he decipher them? Yeah, I mean, as, as Brett and I discussed, I, in, in relation to the, his similar question, I'd, I'd have to look at each one. The scepter, I don't find very impressive for reasons that I already stated. Um, a scepter represents power. Um, that's something that I think that, that most people learn growing up, especially in a religious context or, or in a monarchical monarchical context. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that's very impressive that he represented it as, as a key of power. But others, others I'd have to look at individually. And as I mentioned, you know, the, the, the 25 parallels that Brett has typically pre presented to me, uh, I looked at a number of them and prepared for them. I was only able to respond to the ones that he raised tonight. Hey, great. Brett, did you have any, anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, no, I mean, obviously, Paul and I have a difference of opinion in, uh, in what counts as a hit or not. Um, I don't expect him to be impressed by these things, but, um, you know, it's, uh, I think when you look at the consistency of these hits, it is, uh, it starts to be remarkable in a very short amount of time. Yeah, I, I understand your point about uh, statistical significance, but I think if you don't throw out all of the misses, it's not very statistically significant at all. And there are many, many misses, which if there weren't, the church wouldn't have to go to the catalyst. Theory. All right. So moving on, this next question is for Brett Dennis from G Free. Why would the Book of Abraham conflict with the Book of Moses as well as the Book of Mormon concerning how many gods there are? Uh, you're getting into an area of debate now that I've spent quite a bit of time on, but I, I, you know, I, I don't know if we can really stay focused on the book of Abraham while we're getting into it. Suffice it to say that um, this is a paradigm that shift that exists in the Bible as well. Uh, sometimes God is presented in the singular and sometimes he is presented in the plural. I, I understand most often he's presented in the singular. But Jesus said in John chapter 10, is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. Um, he expanded on that idea in John 17, where he talked about his disciples all being one, even as he and his father are one. Um, so in a certain sense, even in the Bible, God is presented in the plural form. And in some sense, he's presented in the singular form. It's no different in the restored gospel. Um, sometimes God is presented as a singular, and sometimes he's presented in a plural. And uh, there's, if there's a contradiction in one, then there is also a contradiction in the other. But I think we're just looking at two different models to represent the same reality. Okay. 
And I think I already know how Paul would answer that question if he was asked it. So uh, unless you want to add something, Paul. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just ask, uh, I guess, Brett, um, you know, typically Latter-day Saints will say that, that um, they'll, they'll uh, challenge the doctrine of the Trinity uh, by saying that God is one in, the Godhead is one in purpose rather than uh, in being, right? Um, and so your use of, was it, was it John 17? Uh, that, that John 10 and John 17. Yeah, the, the, I'm looking specifically at John 17, that, that, that his disciples would be one, even as he and the Father are one. Um, and you're, you seem to be extrapolating that out to mean that uh, they would each become gods and in that sense would become one with them in, in the LDS sense. Am I understanding you correctly there? Uh, essentially, yes, I think so. Okay. So I guess I would ask then if, if the oneness of God uh, in the Bible, the oneness of the Godhead in the Bible is understood by Latter-day Saints in one place to represent, oh, he's one in purpose. Why would you jump from John 17 into, okay, everyone, uh, all, all people and humans can become gods? Well, I, I, uh, I should have given a little bit more background on John chapter 10. John chapter 10, I think it's verse 30, Jesus starts out by saying, I and my father are one. And then by verse 34, he's saying, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. So even within the same passage, verse 30 to 34, Jesus starts out by saying, you know, the two individuals, the two persons, if you want to call them that, are uh, one. And, you know, that that's not even Trinitarian because he's saying that the Father and the Son are one and the Trinity claims that they're different persons and God is one. So anyway, that, I don't think that's a Trinitarian passage. But you start out by saying that we're one in John chapter 10, verse 30. And then you end up in John chapter 10, verse 34, saying that we are God's. All I'm saying is that Jesus is presenting two different models for how to understand God, and he's doing so in the very same context. So to have, uh, you know, maybe two different models presented in two different contexts for how God is to be understood, I think that's that's natural. And Why, why is Jesus quoting Psalm 82? What's his purpose uh, in quoting that to the Pharisees who are challenging him? He's uh, doing it to prove that he himself has the authority to be called God. Right. So it's not about the Pharisees then. He's not saying the Pharisees are gods. No, he's not saying the Pharisees are gods. He's quoting the scripture that says, that that refers to the plurality of gods. Right. Because they're challenging his authority to call himself the son of God. Right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, I have a question from a, uh, let me see if I can find it here. Um, somebody asked Brett if, if the book of Abraham uh, is the book of Abraham revelation or scripture and if it's revelation, how can it be argued that it is ancient? Well, I guess that depends on what you mean by revelation. A revelation is anything that is communicated by God to man. Uh, so God can communicate ancient documents to man. I suspect what the question is, is it a brand new revelation? And um, I would say, uh, given the multifaceted aspect of Joseph Smith's work, it is there are certain aspects of it that are modern and there are certain aspects of it that are ancient. Again, I see him as combining uh, ancient with modern throughout his revealed writings. Okay, and I think this this next question goes along with that one as well. And this is also for you, Brett. Mm -hmm. um, see, it says, Brett mentioned some symbols that were translated correctly. Oh, why did Brett mention symbols that were translated correctly if conventional translation was irrelevant? Okay. 
That is a good question. When I talk about conventional translation, I refer to a linear phrase-by-phrase -phrase rendering of one language, of one uh, of one a source language text to another. And all I'm saying is that Joseph Smith, while he did capture the meanings of the, the symbols that he was translating, as I demonstrated, it's not quite as linear as a typical translation as a, as a, what we're calling a conventional translation, meaning a translation that would be done by a scholar at a university. Uh, it has different characteristics than that. Paul, right. oh, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the overwhelming evidence with regards to the book of Abraham shows that he did not have the ability to translate uh, Egyptian into English and that he didn't represent the content of the papyrus that was in front of him correctly, either in translation or in uh topic. It's not about Abraham. It's not about uh, any of the narrative that he presents in the book of Abraham. Okay. And I think, uh, I think Matthew had a question to ask. Matthew. Uh, he's there. The squirrels got him. We knew it was going to happen eventually. Um, I'm not having any other uh, questions here on the chat. Michael, did you have any questions? There's another one on here, but um, I think the verses are kind of I think it's kind of spread out among the uh, the chat here. <clears throat> Someone wanted me to ask Brett uh, Franco Matina about First John four one that says, "Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world." Based on the scripture, how do you justify believing that Joseph Smith is a prophet if all you need to discern if someone writing scripture is to pray? <laughs> well, first. Of all First of all, I think that is a, uh, a, a sort of a straw man argument of the LDS position. Um, you need to study it out in your mind and then ask if it's right. Um, if I can get personal here for just a second, um, I did more than just pray to find out that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. I, I believe that I have followed the spirit of 1 John 4, 1, and uh, I've done a lot of study. I've done, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time comparing the Book of Mormon to the Bible um, hopefully it's clear from this discussion that I spent a lot of time comparing Book of Abraham material to other ancient documents, and I found a lot of reasons to believe that it is inspired material, right? The Lord has told us that he will tell us in our mind and in our heart by the Holy Ghost, which will come upon us. So it's not as simple, it, and I know this comes up a lot. This is a, a major discussion of debate on, you know, Facebook forums and so on, but I think there's a lot more to this process than simply praying and getting a good feeling. I think that um, it does need to make sense in your mind. It needs to make sense intellectually as well as in your heart. So, uh, yeah, I think I've I think I've been true to the injunction of John for John for one. Can I can I just ask a follow up question to you, Brett, about that? You bet. Um, so, if if there was a great deal of of evidence that something was scripture, but you didn't get that good feeling in your heart, then would you? have to say, have to throw something out as being scripture in that case? Uh, you know, I'd have to, to, to see the specifics of the situation. I think that um, I'm a kind of an evidence-based guy. You know, I, things that, that make sense to me also feel good. Um, I, I guess I've never really had to face this question before where, you know, something has just been so obviously true in a spiritual sense that has is, that is felt wrong. Um, I believe, given the the type of person that I am, that I would accept it as true, even if uh, it, you know, didn't didn't sit well with me. But I don't know. I'd have to be faced with that situation. Okay. Well, thanks for thanks for answering that. I think Matthew's back on the air. All right. Can you hear me now? 
Yes. Oh man. Something whack happened. You know, it's like everything will work fine for days and weeks. And then as soon as something important happens, it breaks. Um, yeah, so I, quick, I can't even get screen sharing to work. So <laughs> I feel your pain. Yeah. Uh, hey, Paul, I got a question for you. Um, so uh, can you still hear me? Yes. Okay. So one of the points that you made uh, throughout the debate is the idea that one of the reasons that the book of Abraham cannot be considered ancient scripture is because it dates to correct me if I'm wrong around the third century BC, the, the papyri. Yeah. The various, various papyrus fragments uh, date to anywhere between 500 and 150 BC. Okay. So the thing is though, is that someone might point out that we don't have any original texts of the new Testament mm-hmm. in the time period that they're written. So the earliest fragment we have is P 52, I believe is still the earliest and that dates to the early second century. Um, and as far as the, an entire codex or an entire Bible, we don't have the earliest ones we have, as far as I know, are Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, which date to the fourth century. So that's around 300 years after the New Testament was written. So isn't it not a possibility that what is considered the, the papyri that's the basis that some consider the basis for the book of Abraham is a copy that came much later after Abraham wrote it. Couldn't have been a copy of a copy of a copy, et cetera, that survived now to our time. Just because it doesn't date to Abraham's time, doesn't that mean, does it not automatically discredit it as the, as text that could have come from Abraham? Okay. Hope that makes sense. Yeah. And, and the LDS church does, does make this case in, in the gospel topics essay. Right. Um, so the point that the papyri, papyri fragment, papyrus fragments date to uh, between 500 and 150 BC, and therefore they're too late for Abraham. Um, it's not so much that uh, it couldn't be a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, but let's suppose that it is. If it were a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, uh, well, Abraham was copied out of everything on it. Um, he's not there. The, the, the point about it being too late for Abraham is more in relation to Joseph Smith's statement about the papyrus, which was that it was written by his own hand upon papyrus, right? So he he believed he actually had uh, the papyrus fragments that were written by Abraham. Um, it's clear from the text of the Book of Abraham, uh, as I as I point you know put to Brett in my question period, um, that Joseph Smith thought he had uh, a drawing that was made by Abraham. He represented it, uh, Abraham is referring to that drawing in the first person to uh, further uh, explain what he was describing was his own story. Um, so yeah, the, the point about it being too late uh, isn't necessarily uh, that it couldn't be a copy of a copy of a copy because that's how we have the Bible uh, through uh, through transmission. But it is more in relation to, like I said, Joseph Smith's belief about what he had. Okay, and he, he could have just been incorrect about that particular point. But so, so I'm saying is that he could have been incorrect about that point, but it still could have been a copy of a copy, et cetera. I mean, the, the, the assumption then is that like, if it's a copy of a copy of a copy, why does Abraham not show up in it? Why do you not, why do Egyptologists not translate anything on there as having to do, having anything to do with Abraham? Hmm. Why does the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints concede that point? If it's okay. a copy, if it's a copy of something earlier, it's a terrible copy because it doesn't represent what, what would have existed previously. Okay, thank you. Uh, Brett, do you have any comments on that question? Um, yeah, I, I would just say that it's not an irrelevant question. 
um, you know, what, what, when do the specific papyri that we're dealing with date to? Uh, but I think it's overly simplified. Again, I think that there are a lot of uh, issues here that need to be accounted for that are not accounted for when we focus on, you know, just what is the actual lineage from Abraham to the papyrus that we have. Uh, again, there's so many other sources that Joseph Smith tied in dealing with Abrahamic lore. If you're going to adopt the fraud hypothesis, or even, you know, he was totally mistaken hypothesis, it just doesn't seem to me to account for all of that evidence. So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. It's a relevant question, but there are other relevant questions that, that need to be discussed that I think are, uh, by and large, neglected when we discuss the Book of Abraham. Uh, you agree, Brett, that he was wrong about the content of the papyrus? No, I don't believe in, in terms of in relation in terms of it being about Abraham and uh, by Abraham. I don't think he was wrong. I think, as I said, he may have been using the Egyptian papyrus to represent Abraham. I think he saw things in that papyrus that very closely related to both Abraham as well as the uh, endowment that he later revealed. Um, do you think? Do you think that when he presented the papyrus? to people who traveled to Nauvoo and viewed them in his mansion house uh, as being the writings of Abraham and Joseph, as being the writings of Abraham by his own hand upon papyrus. Do you think that his contemporaries understood anything like your, understood him to be meaning anything like you're presenting now? Probably not. Okay. Can I, can I ask one quick question related to that to you, Brett? Sure. Um, So one thing that I struggle to understand is when we're, so I can understand how he could see the symbols and maybe interpret them differently than how Egyptologists would interpret them specifically related to the facsimiles. Um, you know, maybe there's a literal understanding versus a spiritual or metaphorical understanding. But one thing I really struggle with is when we examine facsimile number three, um, he has a label for every one of the characters on that facsimile. And so um, in the figure, he labels Abraham sitting upon Pharaoh's throne and Egyptologists, which includes Michael Rhodes, includes LDS scholars, they'll say that's the label for Osiris. Um, King Pharaoh is labeled as Isis, um, which is uh, a goddess. So in that case, King Pharaoh is labeled as a, as a woman, as a female goddess. So how do you explain um, how do you explain the discrepancy between what Joseph Smith was labeling and in particular this facsimile between the characters? And what the Egyptologists have determined what they represent. And in two cases, at least, they're, they're not even the right gender. So King Pharaoh versus Isis, the goddess. And then uh, Prince of Pharaoh versus Mat, the mistress of the gods. Yeah, I think that when you deal with facsimile three, I'll admit that it's probably the most uh, difficult of, you know, of the three facsimiles for Latter-day Saints to deal with. But uh, a couple of things I want to point out here are, uh, first of all, Joseph Smith made the substitution of Abraham for Osiris in facsimile three, just as he did in facsimile one, just as, uh, you know, Jew, the, the Jewish uh, people did when they were writing the uh, parable of the rich man of Lazarus in Luke 16. And when, when Jesus gave that, it, you know, uh, scholars believe that that was, was uh, evolved from an Egyptian myth. So he's being consistent here with his substitution of Abraham for Osiris. Um I will also say that um, even though he does not give the Egyptian names for the character, the figures in the character, he correctly understands that they are names. Um, so, you know, he says that this is the like Shulam or whatever it is, is indicated by the characters in the, in a, above his head. Well, you go through and if you actually read the Egyptian, they are giving the names of the characters. One, the, what I think is the most interesting aspect, um, well, a couple of things about facsimile three. 
Again, I think Joseph was just repurposing it for revelations that he had. There are ancient Abrahamic sources that talk about Abraham sitting on Pharaoh's throne. There are sources that talk about Abraham teaching Egyptians astronomy in Pharaoh's court. Uh, Josephus is not one of those, by the way. Josephus does not mention Pharaoh's court. He just mentions that Josephus, either that Abraham taught astronomy to the Egyptians. And what uh, facsimile three is, is a weighing of the heart scene where an initiate is brought to the presence of God to see if his heart is pure and then he's allowed to enter into the presence of God. Don't want to get too deep into this, but there are very, very strong parallels between that scene and the endowment. So I think Joseph was using it in, yeah, he wasn't exactly giving the, um, the, the particular meaning of facsimile three in the book of Abraham. I think he, would, he sort of repurposed it for it there and then he took that purpose and he transplanted it over when he uh, revealed the endowment, the Latter-day Saints. So that's kind of a long-winded answer, but there are several lines of association here that I think points to, you know, why even facsimile three can be regarded as inspired. Okay. Thank you, Brett. Um, and we're yeah. already over time. So Paul, do you have a short response to that question? Mm, no, I think I've covered it pretty well. My, po- well. my points would be on that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for indulging me on that last question. I was, I was curious to hear your response on that one. Um, so thank you gentlemen for, for, uh, for that, uh, audience question section of the debate. So now this leads us to the final portion of the debate where, where we have our closing statements. So each participate, each participant will be given five minutes to close out their close out the debate with any comments or closing statements, uh, related to the position they defended. And typically this is not the, the time to present new information. This is not a second rebuttal period. This is typically a closing statement time where you're meant to kind of summarize the topic of the debate, summarize the points that you and your opponent have made and make a case for your position. So um, also for this time, um, if, if you want to explain why this is important for your faith, um, that will be allowed also. So if you want to give a testimony about, about it, that's, I'll allow that. So we'll first go with Brett in the affirmative and we'll give him five minutes. And then afterward, we will turn it over to Paul for, for his. So I'll give you five minutes, Brett, for your closing statement. Okay. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to uh, give a, a brief testimony here. I think I'll probably start with that. Why is the book of Abraham important to my faith? There are a couple reasons for that. First of all, it reveals information in clearer terms that we don't find anywhere else. Um, For example, Doctrine and Covenants 93 talks about how uh, we lived in the presence of God before we were born, but it doesn't say anything about a council like Abraham does. So in terms of the pre-existence of souls, uh, the book of Abraham is unparalleled when it comes to, you know, revealing doctrine. I also think, uh, you know, maybe contrary to popular opinion, the book of Abraham is one of the, the surest testimonies that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And uh, again, like I said at the, at the top, you may have to turn the prism just a little bit and let go of a few starting assumptions about what you think a translation should look like. But once you do that and you shine a new light on the book, it it uh, just explodes with insight, revelation, um, insight into the Bible, insight into ancient documents like the Apocalypse of Abraham. It shows that Joseph Smith could translate Egyptian and uh, so, so with that, I'm, you know, kind of getting into a recap of what I've already said here. Let's just go ahead with that. At the top of this broadcast, uh, I, I presented a paradigm, a conceptual model for understanding the book of Abraham, which is that Joseph Smith could and did translate the characters from the ancient languages and included that, that translation in his English text. 
But what I said is that he didn't stop there. He embellished that translation. He elaborated on it. He combined it with other material. He put it in new context. And uh, so the relevant questions are, can we actually see an accurate thread of Egyptian running through Joseph's explanations? I think I answered that in the affirmative. Yes, you can. And can we account for the portions of the text that do not necessarily come from his primary source document? And by my illustrations, my, my parallels with uh, the Apocalypse of Abraham and with the Bible, I believe I showed that that was um, also answered in the affirmative. Uh, I went through several examples that showed how uh, Dr. Rittner and you know probably other critics of the Book of Abraham um, could be lumped into this as well, how very often things that Joseph gets right are misrepresented. I won't say they're lying, but I think they're misrepresenting the evidence in favor of their, their position. And I showed how Dr. Rittner in one place uh, described a symbol as an altar where Joseph Smith said it was one thing. And then when in another place where Joseph Smith said it was an altar, then Dr. Rittner changes to him and started calling it something else. I also showed uh, additional um, figures that demonstrated that this tendency of Joseph Smith to get things right was fairly consistent. I, I pointed to um, the first four examples in the hypocephalus, facsimile uh, two, where Joseph Smith associated creation with creator. In figure two, he associated um, the uh, Wepoawet scepter, excuse me, or the Was scepter as a symbol of power. I showed how in figure three, Joseph made a very reasonable reconstruction of the figure. The figure was um, the god Ray sitting on his boat with a solar disk over his head. He borrowed it from a different part of the papyrus, but it matched rather closely what should have been in the original, uh, which I find difficult to explain. And then I ended with uh, figure four, which depicted a hawk in his boat. It turned out to be the god Seker. And um, this god was associated with rituals where he was drawn around a sanctuary and represented the revolution of the sun. And Joseph Smith himself associated Seker with the revolution of heavenly bodies. If I'd had time, I could have gone through each one of the characters or the figures in the facsimiles and showed a similar line of accuracy by Joseph Smith in the Egyptian. To me, this demonstrates, I think, fairly clearly that he knew Egyptian and that we need to start looking for, for models to explain the portions of his text that, that don't necessarily come from his primary source document. I think I've given some suggestions as how we might approach that subject. Um, I thank you for your time tonight. It's been fun. It's been stimulating. And uh, I will see you again on the internet. Take care. Thank you, Brett. Appreciate it. Thank you for that closing statement. And now I'll turn it over to Paul. Let me reset the timer for five minutes to Paul. Turn the time over to you for your closing statement. All right. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Brett for, again, agreeing to this debate. Um, over the years, uh, having conversations and discussions with you, Brett, I've come to care for you very much. So I appreciate that you took the time to speak with me tonight and uh, tackle some of my pointed questions. So thank you for that. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I'd also like to, sorry, Brett, didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I'd also like to thank our audience for sticking with us. Uh, appreciate the time you took to listen in as well. Um, tonight, our topic was is the book of Abraham ancient scripture? If you are a Latter-day Saint, as I was for 33 years of my life, this question is an important one. The reason it's important is because the primary reason uh, and evidence given not just by the LDS Church, but by Joseph Smith himself for his 
supposed calling as a prophet and seer was his ability to translate ancient records. And so the question of whether or not he successfully did that with the book of Abraham is an important question to answer because it goes to his authority. Uh, Tonight, I've argued, I think, successfully that the book of Abraham text produced by Joseph Smith is not ancient and it is not scripture. The papyrus fragments rediscovered in 1967 tie directly to the Kirtland Egyptian papers, specifically to the Egyptian alphabet and grammar produced by Smith and his scribes, which is connected to Abraham chapter one. Here is what the LDS Church says about that. Quote, some evidence suggests that Joseph studied the characters on the Egyptian papyri and attempted to to learn the Egyptian language. His history reports that in July 1835, he was continually engaged in translating an alphabet to the book of Abraham and arranging a grammar of the Egyptian language as practiced by the ancients. This grammar, as it was called, consisted of columns of hieroglyphic characters followed by English translations recorded in a large notebook by Joseph's scribe, William W. Phelps. Another manuscript written by Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery has Egyptian characters followed by explanations. This, the relationship of these documents to the book of Abraham is not fully understood, end quote. And to that, I would ask, is the relationship truly not understood? Or does the relationship pose problems for the claim that Smith could translate the Egyptian language into English? I'll remind our listeners and Brett that the LDS Church admits that the papyrus fragments do not mention Abraham and have nothing to do with him, contra what Joseph Smith said. Tonight, I've also presented arguments against Brett's some of Brett's proposed parallels between Joseph Smith's narrative and ancient Egyptian beliefs. Uh, I could get into that more, but did not have time tonight. The LDS Church claims to be the only true church on the face of the earth, and it does so on the authority of Joseph Smith's ministry. If Joseph Smith claimed things that are not true, for example, if he claimed that as a seer, he was able to translate ancient records, which he believed to be written by Abraham, and it is demonstrable that he could not translate ancient records, and that the ancient records he claims to translate have nothing to do at all with the subject he claimed was the ancient author, then he most assuredly was not a seer. When Jesus spoke with the Samaritan woman at the well, he established his authority by telling the woman things about herself that he could not have known about a stranger, namely that she had been married five times and that the man that she was now with was not her husband. That prompted her to recognize him as a prophet and pose the thorny question to him that divided the Samaritans from the Jews. Where is the right place to worship? Yahweh, on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. Jesus responded, quote, The hour has come when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and, the, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What does it mean to worship the Father in spirit and in truth? It means to flee from error. In Acts, we are told that Paul, the apostle, and Silas traveled from Thessalonica to Berea to teach in the synagogue there. In chapter 7, verse 11, we read, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. When Paul and Silas brought them a new message about Jesus the Messiah, they examined the scriptures to see if the things that Paul and Silas were teaching were true. As a Mormon, I was taught that if I came to know that the Book of Mormon was truly a witness, was true by a witness from the Holy Spirit, then Joseph Smith was God's prophet, and if he was a prophet, then all that he did was and taught was true. Here is a question for Latter-day Saint listeners: Should a feeling that Joseph Smith was a prophet and seer overcome all evidence to the contrary? And another: What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Thank you for taking the time to listen. May God bless you and bring you into His glorious grace by drawing you to Jesus alone for salvation. All right, Paul. Thank you, Brett. Thank you 
appreciate you guys both coming on and, and doing this debate. I thought it was fantastic. Thank you, Michael. It's fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was nice seeing you uh, outside of just the uh, the Facebook groups. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, Fireflies, that's a wrap for this debate. Feel free to share your thoughts in the Outer Brightness group on Facebook. Is there an aspect of this topic we missed? Any debate topics you'd like to see in the future? Let us know. The podcast version of this debate will be posted March 7th. This Sunday, the regularly scheduled podcast episode will wrap up our discussion of the sixth LDS article of faith. What about priesthood and church structure, part three? And coming up on February 21st, we'll be sharing a conversation we had about uh, we had about Reformed Covenant theology with pastors Ben Hyink and Darren Caldwell from Covenant Grace Church, Syracuse, Utah. Thank you for tuning in to this first Outer Brightness debate. Shine bright, fireflies. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Sleep well. Have a good night. Take care, Brad. Thank you for coming. Good night. Yep. Thanks, Paul. We'll see you. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to do lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at AdamsRoadMinistry.com. Stay bright, Flyerflies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life And we have believed and have come to know That you are the Holy One of God The Word made flesh, the risen Son Yeah.